This is Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it cannot be complained about by my co-host, John Syracuse. I'm Dan Benjamin. Today is December 30th, 2011. It's almost gone. It's almost over. This is episode number 48. We want to say thanks to our sponsor today, Shopify.com. Tell you more about them later on in the program. We also want to mention that bandwidth for this episode has been provided by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear all of the shows from 5 by 5 and thousands of other great podcasts. I mean, really, are there any other great ones? I think maybe there are a few. But you can hear them on demand and on the go with Stitcher's free mobile app. Go to stitcher.com slash 5. Download it today and uh, enjoy a chance to win 100 bucks. That's it. How are you, John Syracuse? I'm doing fine, Dan Benjamin. Wow. There's a weird long pause there. Like you were you were waiting for your cue. I was blowing my nose. Oh, <laughs> nice. Yeah. I, I, TMI. I also, I also had to retrieve the box of tissues. Well, priorities the, are in line, I guess. All the things that happen when the microphone is on mute. That's right. You ready for another uh, smorgasbord show today? I am. I very much am. I don't know why it's like the end of the year. These shows are like less focused and it's just a bunch of little things. I don't mm. know. Maybe there's no one. Everyone's on vacation for the holidays and nothing's going on, I guess. It's been a, been a slow news week. That's for yeah. sure. Although we don't always talk about news. I don't know. Maybe for the new year, we'll, we'll get back on track. Okay. Uh, I have, I have some ideas stewing for future main topics, but a lot of them, I start. I think of the topic. I'm like, oh yeah, a lot of people have asked about this. We should we should talk about this. And I say, well, is it really you know, Apple related? Is there any Apple angle at all? Is it a related business or technology kind of? And I get I get worried about the about staying on topic for the show. Well, I mean, I've you know maybe then you just change the topic of the show. You don't want to limit change your, the description. Yeah, yeah, change the description. It's your show. Oh, yeah, you know no. what? Now I want to talk about Oreo cookies all the time. Fine, we'll just add that to the description. <laughs> I can go that far. I, although I. I was writing a blog post while uh, off from work from my, on my personal blog for once because I haven't written on it in about a year. You have a personal blog? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I, I, it's had like five posts to it total in the lifetime. It's a bit, it averages about one post a year because most of the stuff I want to write about, I'll write about in a venue that's appropriate. Like, you know, our tactic is appropriate for technology stuff. I'll talk about Apple stuff here, but occasionally I want to talk about something that has nothing to do with Apple or technology. Arguably, the grammar punctuation stuff is applicable here but at least you can say well it came up in a conversation of the steve jobs bio which is clearly on topic and so we get off on tangents sure but but yeah i do have a personal blog and i occasionally write stuff there yeah it's not very interesting but i like i have to have an outlet for personal stuff that's longer than a tweet right but today more scattered topics and we'll start We'll finish out the year starting the follow-up segment with what is now the traditional grammar and punctuation follow-up. I'll make it short. Simon Russell writes in to tell us that the plural of Lego is Lego, not a Legos. Right. Did you know this, Dan? Of course. I know this too. Uh, it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter, but I understand that that is correct. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing about that is I've known that for years and years, but, but it's, it's awkward to say. Lego uh, toys and blocks. Is, right. I think, so, the way you're supposed you know, to say it. 
I've got a lot of Lego. <laughs> I have a lot of Lego toys and blocks. You can just say, I've got a lot of Lego. Well, I can't. No, I can't say that. Well, yeah, it's, it's awkward to say. Uh, <laughs> it, but, could, yeah, it could be said, but as a yeah. human being in, on planet Earth, I cannot say that. And so in the last show, we were talking about how many uh, Lego toys and blocks our children have and, right. and stuff like that. So that's why I came up. People didn't like how we said it the wrong way. And it, it reminds me of, uh, well, well, first of all, I went to find a link for the show notes. Like, all right, let me just get the link from the official Lego site where surely they tell you how to pronounce the plural. And apparently they're not forthcoming about that obviously they use it correctly on their own site, but there's not like a fact item that I could find that says you may be wondering what the plural of Lego is. But here, you know, so there's plenty of other links on the internet about. It. I put one in the show notes link from Stack Exchange site that has some research about it and insights all this stuff. Hmm. Uh, the thing it brings to mind is, uh, do you know the restaurant where they serve you ice cream uh, that serve you really bad food, but also like ice cream sundaes? Like a Reese's peanut butter cup sundae with like M&M's in it and ice cream. Do you know the name of that restaurant? Are you thinking of the Cheesecake Factory? No, it starts with an F. I don't want to say it because I'm going to prejudice you against the uh, saying the name one way or the other. Fuddruckers. Uh, no, maybe maybe this is just a Northeast chain. Uh, it, it's regular food, but it's like a kid-focused restaurant. And the big thing is you get like an ice cream sundae at the end of your meal. Chuck E. Cheese. It starts with an F. You don't know it? F-R-I-E-N. Ring any bells? Fridays. That doesn't start with F-R-I-E-N. Fridays. I was waiting for you to say Mars Bar. <laughs> <laughs> I've never, I don't, I don't think I've heard of that. Of course, when you say it all, I'll say, oh, of course, but no. Uh, friendlies. Friendlies. I have, I, I am aware of this place. I've never eaten there. I don't believe that it's here. It certainly wasn't, uh, if, if it existed in the states I've lived in, in uh, lived in it it's not uh, it, it might have been in pennsylvania i don't know probably I mean, yes i've i i, I am complete i'm aware of this place i'm not f- completely ignorant of it but i've i've never eaten at a friendly's how do you uh, friendly l y s f r i e n d well see here's the thing when, when i was growing oh, up oh yeah i've seen this sign this, before yeah we would go to this place and like when you're kids you like it because you get ice cream sundaes the food is not very good and ice cream's not very good either but whatever what do you know when you're a kid um and we all called, let's go to Friendly's. Want to go to Friendly's for dinner? I go to Friendly's to get ice cream sundae. They, would, they also sell ice cream cakes, which actually aren't bad. So, uh, by the way, I, I entered in my current zip code here in Austin, Texas. Mm-hmm. And I was told that the closest Friendly's to me is a mere 992 miles away. Uh, right. in, in my previous home state of Florida, in Orlando. So there was one there on iDrive, uh, which is the touristy area near the parks, uh, which explains why I was oblivious to it. Yeah, I'm really, you wouldn't go there voluntarily okay. as an adult anyway. Uh, <laughs> so, but but the reason it comes up is because that, that's what we all called the restaurant. But the restaurant name for much of my life was not Friendly's. It was Friendly. You look at the gigantic red fancy <laughs> script sign on the side of the restaurant. It was F-R-I-E-N-D-L-Y. And that was the end of the name. That was the end of the sign. I bet if you Google for it, you can find pictures of those signs. But everybody called it Friendly's. Now, everybody says Legos even though it's not correct. So the Friendly restaurant franchise said, this is the name of a restaurant, it's called Friendly, but the public just decided we're going to call it Friendly. It's kind of like how the public decides to call the iPod Touch the iTouch. Now, right? I, I just I, I just want to say that I Googled for Friendlies and, and chose images, and every single image has the apostrophe S on. Right, so in 1989, 
the restaurant succumbed to popular <laughs> usage and added the apostrophe S. <laughs> and they went to all the signs and added the apostrophe no S. Way. They changed their carpool. Yeah, you can look at the Wikipedia page. I put it in the show notes. In 1989, <laughs> they added the apostrophe S. So they just like, all right, forget. Everyone calls us friendlies. They made it possessive, you know? And so that's what the restaurant is now called. That's so I, funny. It may be difficult to find a picture of the old signs now, I guess, on Google, but maybe, you know. So the Lego Legos thing reminds me of that. And yeah, and iPod and iTouch was like, well, you know, people might say, are you saying that Apple should change it to the iTouch? No, I think they should call it the iPod Touch and people should get with the program uh, because I don't think it's that awkward. Uh, friendly friendlies, they just got off on the wrong foot, I think. I don't think friendly is that bad, but for whatever reason, it just didn't it didn't take. Uh, and the Lego plural, it just, it's just so awkward. And I've, I've never heard anybody do it except for super duper Lego nerds. Even if I went to this Lego convention thing in boston mm -hmm. with my son like and they had people who worked for the lego company doing presentations every once in a while they would slip up too i'm sure they have massive corporate training to say things correctly but those people if you work for the lego company surely you spent your entire childhood playing with these things yeah and legos is like burned in your brain so no matter how much corporate training they give you you're going to eventually uh, slip up so i knew i do know that lego is plural sometimes i try to do it sometimes i don't but it's really difficult, and especially in this case, where it's not like we're changing the name of the company. It's just the plural, right? We're not asking them to change the name of their product. We're just asking to accept what Americans, at least, all use as the, the plural. So I think it would behoove them to be more flexible in regards to the plural. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to meet them halfway by when I can remember. Like, if I was writing about it, I would avoid writing Legos. Simply because, like, oh, like, I'm writing, you got the time to do it right, structure the sentence to either don't need to do the plural that way or just write it the way they want, you know? And then if someone emails you and say, oh, in this sentence, I think you forgot an S because you said, my son has a lot of Lego. I, I think you missed the S there. And I could say, well, actually, no, Lego wants you to, you know, <laughs> I like being able to to be officially supported in writing. But in speech, I don't mind people be calling me on it. You're right. I'm saying it incorrectly. Uh, I apologize. It's difficult for me to say it the other way. Yeah, rounding out the year with more grammar and uh, <laughs> punctuation of plurals. And, and on the uh, the apostrophe S thing, the only point that I didn't get to in the last discussion and that a lot of people wrote in about is the possibility of there being ambiguity if you have a a word that ends in S but is singular and you want to make it possessive. If you just tack on the apostrophe, people say, well, what, what if there's a situation where now despite the context and everything else, you can't tell if they're trying to say the singular word ending in S possessive or uh, the word that doesn't end in S made plural by the S and then made possessive, you know, mm -hmm. like kids, K-I-D-S apostrophe, something right. belonging to more than one child, right? So what if you had a situation where you had the S and apostrophe and it was ambiguous and you couldn't tell? Well, I can't even tell. Do they mean... You know, because there is also a word, a singular word that ends in S, but there's also a, a word that doesn't end in S. And I can't tell if they're saying it's more than one and possessive or singular and possessive. I tried to come up with an example of that ambiguity and it's uh, you can come up with them, but they're very contrived. Right. But I just wanted to add that data point. Uh, and and on the other side of, you know, why why do the style guides say to add apostrophe S, especially in in, uh, in the face of uh the difficulty of pronouncing pronouncing these things if you decide you have to actually pronounce that apostrophe S. I don't think you do have to. But anyway, enough on that topic. Uh, on to some more traditional follow-up or, or reader mail. I don't know. This is blending. Follow-up, reader mail, they blend. Uh, this is from Nathan Ferguson. <laughs> says, I have two follow-up questions uh, regarding HyperCard. 
we talked about HyperCard. I think it was in the last show. About the why HyperCard had to die article and about uh, having an environment where regular people can uh, program and the history of personal computers uh, being originally seen as a way to allow anyone to be a programmer to write programs for the computer. So Nathan says, on episode 69 of the talk show, Gruber likened HyperCard to Microsoft's Visual Basic and then described Apple's lack of something like Visual Basic or HyperCard as a blind spot for the company, which Gruber believed Apple should and might someday address. I don't remember enough of that episode to know if he is accurately representing Gruber's position, but I will just take it at face value here and, and ask the question. So do you, do you agree or disagree? This point was never explicitly addressed. So basically asking, do I think Apple needs something like HyperCard. Is this a blind spot for the company? Uh, I don't know if I did explicitly address that, but I implicitly addressed it by saying that I don't think it's important to... Uh, I don't think that the purpose of computers today or ever really was going to be to give regular people a way to write programs, simply because the thinking... The, the model of thinking required to be successful at writing a program and not like painting yourself into the corner or getting stuck or whatever, is not widespread in the population. Uh, it's, not, it's not something that everyone is ever going to be, uh, not like able to do. I say able is like you're a magic person. You only super people can program. It's not that you're not able. It's kind of like playing a musical instrument. Anybody can learn to play a musical instrument better than, you know, not being able to play it at all. But some people have musical talent, and the people who don't have that particular gift they can work very hard and sound very good, but they're never going to be, you know, a gifted musician. No one's ever going to mistake them for somebody who's really musically talented and, you know, has perfect pitch and or whatever. All, all these gifts that people have that are very difficult to learn. Uh, programming is like it too. Anybody can learn to program. Uh, what I'm saying is that most people don't want to learn to program because programming is not fun to them. Uh, and because it, I don't know, because they don't, they're not interested in that topic. Or they don't have the skills to, to, uh, they're not successful immediately, so it turns them off. Uh, so anyone can learn to program. You force yourself. If someone puts a gun to your head and says, you're going to learn to be a programmer, you could do it. But they won't if it's not something that they enjoy doing or that they see a big return on or that their mind just doesn't work that way. We tend to do things, do, like to do the things that we, that we see that we have a potential to be good at. And most people are not naturally inclined to have a potential to be good at programming. So people, you could teach them how to program. They're like, eh, I'm not really, this seems like a lot of work. I'd rather <laughs> just have someone else write the program for me. Because they're not into, pro same thing, you know, people feel about musical instruments. Yeah, I can kind of tinkle on some piano keys, but I don't see myself getting good enough to be impressive to girls. So I'm going to give up on it, right? Or whatever your 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 motivation is about that. So I, I did have someone write in and say, you know, I want to be a programmer, but you said that like regular people can't be programmers. Now I'm discouraged. Don't don't be discouraged. If you're interested in it, work at it. You'll get better. You can get you can still be better than the vast majority of people in the world and probably the vast majority of other programmers. if You just work hard. But most people aren't motivated to work hard about it. So get, getting back to this question, I don't think this is something that Apple needs. I don't think this is something that any company needs to have. There needs to be a way for regular people to do programmery like things. I don't think that's true now. And I think it's increasingly less true as time goes on as computers are becoming moving farther farther away from sort of general purpose computing devices that that people are expected to program to becoming more and more like appliances and so no i don't think there's an environment where th there needs to be one like every platform needs to have a way for regular people to write programs there needs to be a way for regular people to do the things to, to solve their problems 
but I don't think the way to solve their problems is a programming environment, no matter how high level, like even something like Automator. Automator, like I said, doesn't look like a programming environment, but if you try to do anything remotely complicated with Automator, you will very quickly get into the realm of programming. And if you don't have a background in that, you may be stumped and you probably won't be motivated to say, okay, I now realize that what I'm actually doing here with these humongous pieces to do amazingly complicated things, but I'm, I'm tacking them together, I'm basically making a program. And I need to learn about enough about programming to know why I can't figure out how to get the thing done that I want to do. So let me go learn some basics about programming, get some background and come back to this. No, they stop at that point. They say, well, I tried to use Automator to get it done, but I couldn't. The pieces, the moving parts in Automator are not individual statements in a programming language. They're amazingly complicated programs in and of themselves, but it's still programming. And no matter how cool and complicated those pieces get, it will still be programming. I, you know, I like the fact that Automator is there. And I think... Apple certainly provides many, many ways for programmers and people who are the programming background to make the machines do what they want. I don't think there's a hole where they say, oh, well, we need everybody to be able to program. We need something like HyperCard. The idea, first of all, the idea that everybody could program HyperCard or Visual Basic is also crazy because it was very difficult to program, you know, they say, oh, so many people made hypercard stacks who could never program in Pascal. That's true, but so many more people would never be able to figure out how to make a hypercard stack or never did figure it out because, you know, they would start doing it and say, oh, this looks complicated and stop. And again, I want to say, like, they'd never be able to because they're too dumb or they couldn't. They could figure it out, but they're not motivated to. They look at it, they say, oh, I see. This is, wants me to type some script attached to this button. Well, I'm checking out now. And they just stop getting into it. Doesn't mean they're mentally unable to do it they just stop at that point they say that's not that's not what i want to do i'm not interested in that seems like too much work for the return i'm going to get right so, so they stop uh so no i don't think there's a gap in apple's lineup uh or, or a blind spot for this type of thing a lot of us who like hypercard think that it, it would be nice to have something like that again and there is a big gap between using xcode and using automator and maybe something could slot in there but strategically speaking yeah, it depends on what they mean by blind spot. They mean blind spot is in something that Apple doesn't look at. Well, yeah, they're not interested in it. But it's, but when I see blind spot, I think, oh, strategically, they're making a mistake by not having this product and it's going to hurt them. No, I don't think it will hurt them. So not in that definition of blind spot, I think no. Uh, and then he goes on to say, hearing your own Gruber's description of hypercard in its development environment, it sounded a lot like dashboard widgets, simple HTML based non app utilities and dash code, Apple's environment for making widgets. Do dash code and dashboard widgets qualify as hypercard successor? Do you think Apple considers them as such? Could these represent a path to true hypercards to a true hypercard successor? Dashboard and dash code are basically web programming. And web programming is web programming is as real as you know, it's real programming these days. Uh, arguably it always was, but you know, JavaScript is a real language. Web programming is real programming. And I think <laughs> having enough background to use dashboard and dash code to like really understand what's going on. You have to have a tremendous amount of knowledge about how the web works, how HTML works, CSS, JavaScript. There's a huge background you need before you can actually understand what you're doing when you hook up some of these little buttons. I don't think it's easy enough to use that it lowers the, the barrier to entry to programming. If you can use dash code, uh, you're probably a web programmer. Uh, it's a, if you can use it to do anything non-trivial, not just like I'm following a tutorial and, uh, and clicking some buttons here and there. So I don't think dash code comes close. HyperCard was easier than dash code, I think because there was less background you needed to know for HyperCard, because it was its own environment. It didn't expect that. So you've been programming the web since 1992. Well, given all your background as a web developer, here's this cool IDE for uh, making web apps, but it's a, but a little easier, and you can run them in this dashboard-type environment. HyperCard 
had a lower barrier to entry than that, but it, it introduced its own language, but just one language. You didn't have to know CSS. You didn't have to know HTML. You didn't have to know, you know on top. You just needed HyperTalk and be able how to click some buttons and stuff, and you could you could get going. So I think HyperCard was easier than Dashcode and Dashboard Widgets, but uh, they're they're not replacements for each other. One more follow up here. Two, two follow-ups from uh, Marco's recent show, which I just finished listening to. I'm still kind of behind. It's amazing. On vacation, you'd think I'd be all caught up on podcasts, but that's not the case with hmm. the kids home and everything and doing holiday stuff and no commute. It turns out that I have less time <laughs> to listen to podcasts, not more. But I, I did uh, listen to Marco's. I think this is the most recent episode. And at one point, there was this... I, God, I can't even remember the context. I should have written it more. You were talking about the Kindle Fire. Yeah. And Marco mentioned that uh, so we had the holiday season, and it seems to be popular, but it's been out for a while, and we still don't see lots of positive reviews. We see like reviews that are very negative about it, or reviews that are kind of like, well, you know, it's not an iPad, but it's pretty good. And the point that was brought up a couple of shows ago about how Amazon's page showing the quotes from the press about the Kindle Fire, most of the quotes were from before the Fire was released. Like, we think the Kindle Fire will be the first real iPad, you know, before they'd actually even use it. So those are the most positive quotes. And they say, like, boy, the Kindle Fire is coming on. Look out, guys. But not a lot of quotes pulled from after the thing was released and say, here's some quotes from the reviews that, you know, they reviewed our product and they said the Kindle Fire is the best product ever, you know. Uh, and I, do you remember the context of this conversation? You were saying, what What do you think about the Fire? Is it uh, is it doing well? It seems like they sold a lot of them, but how come we don't see more successful reviews? I, yeah, I'm not exactly sure how it, how the topic came up. I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember, and I'm not, not positive that that it was the most recent one. I actually think it was the one before that, but I, I'm not totally sure. But we were talking somehow. We got on the topic of Kindle, Kindles as readers. I think it was because it was prior to Christmas, and we were anticipating hearing i don't know you know it might have been that it might have been that but it that's not that important yeah and i see some i saw some sales numbers they were saying that amazon somehow they divined that amazon sold four million kindles but there wasn't a breakdown to say how many of those were the fires but anyway what this triggered in me listening to this was uh the meta question of why why are we always talking about the fire right like we don't spend all this time talking about the galaxy tab whatever you know or any or any of these other tablet products that are iPad competitors, we're always talking about the Fire. Uh, and I th- the, what I got from it is that I, I think that was the question you bring up. Why, why are we always talking about the Fire? Uh, you didn't bring up the other things uh, in particular, but it's like, you know, everyone seems to think it stinks, but we keep talking about this thing. And it made me think about what what is it that makes the Fire worth talking about and the other ones aren't? Uh, and I thought back to as I often do, the, you know, the Mac PC and the battle for the desktop, about what counts towards success. Mm. And in the, in the Mac PC things, the Mac users and the Apple fans really wished with all their heart that what made success in the market was like software quality and elegance and hardware design and stuff. Like, that's what we, that's what we wanted. But like, because that's, those are the things that we value and Apple does them so much better than everyone else. So we really think that those are the things that should be most important in determining uh, which platform succeeds in the market, or which which company does better, whose products sell more. Uh, the reality was different. The reality was there were other factors that turned out to be more important than that. Uh, 
you know, established trust with a, with a player like IBM, uh, market forces, having many hardware manufacturers competing against each other to drive prices down, uh, business decisions about how Apple decided to price its product and, and position them in the market, fear about choosing the wrong platform, and it feels more safe to pick IBM than Apple. And, you know, the whole dynamic with Microsoft figuring out a way to be able to license the OS to other hardware manufacturers, you know, and sort of using IBM as a springboard to its own success. All those things that Mac users and Apple fans, you know, felt like cheating. It's like, well, but we have the better product. Shouldn't we win this naive view of how business works? That somehow just because you have the better product, you you deserve to win and you will win in the market. Uh, So thinking of the tablet market, the iPad is obviously the big, is the gorilla here, 800-pound gorilla. iPad is dominant in the market. And Apple fans like to think that it's because the iPad is the best product. And I think we can all kind of agree that it is. Like, there's no tablet out there that people say, this is this is better than the iPad in all possible ways. I don't think, no matter how big a fan you are of any other platform, you could say it's better because I can install my own software on it. And so there's some aspect of it that's better than the iPad. But overall, if you had to, like, say, what is, uh, money is no object. What's the best tablet I can buy? And even if money is an object, you know, at any price, the iPad is the winner. And, and Apple fans like, well, see, it's because Apple's products are so elegant and beautiful and simple and they're designed well. And Apple cares and their software is better. And that's that's why the iPad wins. And the iPod experience reinforced that notion in Apple fans. As, you know, did, did the iPod bear that out? Like, because like, well, see, the iPod, you know, we got the iPod got 70% of the digital music player work. And you know why? Because it was like simple and elegant and beautifully designed and, <laughs> integrated with the software experience. Is that why the iPod won in the market? Or, or, or were there, did it win despite that? Were there other reasons? My big thing on the iPod, and I've said this many times, and for a lot of Apple products, is that the iPod won, well, first it won because of the absence of other factors. A lot of the factors that hurt, that, that, that hurt like the Mac or whatever, that's saying, oh, we don't, we'd rather get the IBM music player because we trust IBM more. It was consumers, not businesses. And, and consumers are less, it seemed to be less wary. You know, it's like they were afraid to buy Macs because all their friends were using Windows and businesses wanted to go with IBM because it was, you know, no one never got fired for buying IBM. But when it came to digital music players, there was no precedent there. And there was no, I'm afraid I can't get this because I have to get the Windows one. You know, it was, it was a separate thing. And the existing music players were, there was no dominant player in the market at all. And they were all very cruddy. But my big thing on the iPod was that it let people be successful with digital music. You'd buy one and you could successfully use it, which was not true of all the digital music players before that. If you weren't nerd, a nerd and somehow you found your way into buying a digital music player, which would be rare to begin with because there was no real marketing push for them. But somehow you're like, eh, I want to get something for jogging and I saw this thing in the store, let me try it. You wouldn't be able to figure it out because it had 8,000 buttons on it and some little LCD screen. You couldn't figure out what thing to do and the software for it that you put on your PC well, it wouldn't work at all with your Mac. And on your PC, you couldn't figure out how to get music onto it. And you'd try to do it once or twice and put three songs on it. And then you'd go jogging with it and you get sick of those three songs. And you, <laughs> and you would think of the work required to change the different songs on there. And you're like, I'll oh, just forget it. And you would just, you know, go back to your cassette player and not listen at all. All right. And the iPod, anybody could buy that, bring it home and figure it out. It held way more songs and they would it would change their lives. They said, I am now successfully listening to music in a different way than I had before. No one needed to help me. I just bought this thing. I never heard of it. I have no allegiance to Apple. I have no appreciation for fine design or anything like that. I don't care that it looks cool. You know, it's like it's nice or whatever, but that's not why I bought it. But they were successful and they tell their friends, oh, you got to get an iPod because when I work out, I got to have my iPod or I listen to my iPod all the time on my commute. You got to get one of these things or and the music fans, so you just got to get one, you know, just music nerds. They're not computer nerds. Like, I have my entire collection on here. It's awesome. Look at this. Name a song. I can throw it up for you. 
That's why the iPod was successful. Only secondarily, at best secondarily, because of all of the beautiful, elegant, you know, and it's kind of tied together. It's like, well, why were they successful? They were successful because it's an integrated Apple experience and it was simple and iTunes was simple and it left, you know, they are connected, but very little of it has to do with the subtle nuances of what makes what makes the iPods design better than the the ripoff players, because we see those subtle differences magnified in our minds. Like all oh, these, you know, these things aren't even close. The same kind of way we saw like Windows three point one and the Macintosh OS worlds apart. And even when Windows ninety five came out, we could say, well, to the layperson, Windows ninety five it's the same thing as the Mac at that point. But to to us Mac people, like, no, it's not the same thing. Don't you see? You know, the, the differences became as the differences became more subtle between Windows and the Mac operating system. They stood out more in the minds of the connoisseurs by saying, no, it's not the same. Let me let me tell you this subtle distinction between Windows ninety five and Mac that you haven't picked up on, but that is just so important that makes Windows ninety five <laughs> so much worse. Right. But the public was like, they they're the same to me. They have Windows. They look kind of the same. You drag stuff around, whatever. You know, game over. Right. And so there were iPod competitors, and if if one of those iPod competitors was held up to an iPod, that hardware wise, these look the same. Then yeah, they look the same. You're like, no, you don't see. See, let me show you on the iPod. It's totally different. The iPod is so much better. But that's not why people were buying the iPod. Those distinctions that we cared so much about weren't why people were buying. And same thing with the software. It was just like at a certain point, the iPod became the Windows of the thing. It's like, well, everyone else has an iPod, and that's the name. It's whenever digital music player comes up. It's not even called digital music player. It's like the Kleenexification of Digital, it's, it is an iPod, even if it's not actually an Apple iPod, right? It just, it made people successful early. It was better than all the other competitors. It got traction, and then just it's game over after that. And after that point, Apple could have made horrible, horrible hardware, and people still would have kept buying it, right? And arguably, the great example I think of this is, is iTunes. iTunes started out as, as, you know, like take sound jam and remove almost all the features. Really, really simple iTunes today, you would not say is a simple and elegant application. No, certainly not. It's giant and bloated. It does a million different things. It's all tied up with all the iOS devices. It is not simple, right? But does, has that hurt the, the success of the iPod? No, it's too late. Like they've got, they've got the uh, the, the foothold in the market. They they are the the eight hundred pound gorilla. They are the Windows people. Who just want iPods because they want iPods. And I think this proves that the iPod didn't win primarily because it's a simplicity and elegance because some of the simplicity and elegance, particularly on the software side has been removed, but it has not hurt the product. All right. And this brings me back to the tablet market because you think, so what, what does it take to be a player in the tablet market? It's that, uh, was that Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton's book? It takes a village. I've not read that book. Is that, who's that who wrote it? I'm going it's to a part of pop culture, but the, the jokes on it takes it. Well, anyway, in the tablet market, it takes a platform. <laughs> that, that's why we're interested in the Kindle Fire, because Amazon has one. What do I mean by platform? It's like everything together. They've got the users. You know, they've got people who are signed up for Amazon. So, they've yes, it, it, been, it is called It Takes a Village. It is a, uh, a book by Hillary Clinton, and uh, it is available for purchase. <laughs> it probably still takes a village, so, you know, you could be reading that. So Amazon got people to sign up to buy books in 1990-whatever, and you know now they sell everything under the sun. So they've got customers. They've got credit cards. Those customers have credit cards on file with Amazon that they use, that they keep up to date, because if you're, if you're an Amazon customer, you probably buy something from there at least once per period that your credit card expires. So they've got credit cards. 
they've got content. Amazon has done deals with video people for you know streaming video, audio, music. They have a music star. They have a video star. They've got a lot of content. They've got the the relationships, uh, and they've got hardware and software. Now they're not manufacturing their own hardware, and they're they're doing a lot less hardware design than Apple does. You know, people are saying that the Fire is basically just the playbook design put in a different package. Uh, so it's not quite Apple where like they make everything, they design everything, and then you know. Neither company is actually manufacturing anything. Neither company owns, uh, you know, its own factories and stuff. But a- Apple does a little bit more of that. But and they have software and the same type of thing. Software. Uh, Amazon is kind of doing its own thing, but it's basing its software on Android. It's not Android, Android, but underneath there is the Android operating system that they've heavily customized, right? And you know, Apple with the iPad, it's got the users from the iTunes days, from the music store and everything. It's got their credit cards. You know, that's their equivalent of the Amazon store that is the iTunes account, your Apple ID, whatever they're calling it these days. Apple's got the content. They've got they had the first and biggest music store, the, you know, first big music store. Uh, they've got some video deals. They, they've got relationships with the content people, hardware and software that they own lock, stock and barrel like they, they own it from top to bottom as much as you can possibly own it. They want to own every piece of it that, you know, even though they don't manufacture it themselves. Right. So Amazon is really close to having all the things that Apple has. The, the only parts where they fall down is you can quibble about who has better content deals and you can quibble about uh, the fact that Apple really, really owns its hardware and software more than Amazon does. But it's clear that Amazon is trying to own as much of it as, it's can, as it can. It's not, I'm just another Android tablet now. It's, it's a Kindle Fire thing and it happens to run Amazon apps, right? Apple also owns the software market more than Amazon does because Amazon, you know, like, well, we'll run your Android apps and we have a store, but it's it's this big muddle of confusion about writing Android apps that happen to run on the fire and stuff like that. Uh, but, that's, but that's why we're paying attention to the Kindle because it's the closest competitor to Apple's platform. And people keep talking about products, uh, you know, talk, looking at the individual tablets and looking at their specs and how much they cost. And that's just missing the forest for the trees. That's not what's important in the tablet uh, market. Everyone else has far fewer pieces of this puzzle. Oh, Windows. So Windows tablets, which presumably will someday burst onto the scene with, you know, the Metro UI and all that other stuff. I actually, I saw one the other day. I think they're actually out now, or maybe it was just a prototype hardware. I don't know. I, I can't even keep track of whether they're out yet. People in the chat room can tell me that I'm a fool and you could buy Windows uh, Windows 8 tablets right now. I don't know. Uh, but what, so what does Windows have? They've got hardware, but it's, it's, you know, in the typical Microsoft fashion, it's made by others, you know, so there's no Microsoft branded hardware yet maybe there will be someday like the zune was but lots of people can make windows 8 tablets right but that's traditional the pc model right software microsoft owns that top to bottom it's windows 8 metro there's no no ambiguity about who owns that they own the stack they're controlling it they're steering that ship they've they've made a big turn windows 8 metro ui is very different from the previous ones uh customers who buy digital content i think microsoft has far fewer of those than uh, than amazon or apple because who's, I, I don't even know what, I'm sure Microsoft has digital content stores, but I can't imagine they have a fraction of the number of uh, paying customers with credit cards who buy digital content through Microsoft stores. Uh, and content, when uh, Microsoft does not have the scope and, and volume of, of content deals that Amazon and Apple do. Uh, some, some other competitors. Palm, dead. <laughs> they have nothing. Rim, dead soon. <laughs> you know, am I forgetting someone? 
who else is in the tablet market who has anything close to the platform the, the sort of the collection of platform assets that that uh amazon and apple do mm. i tried I to make this list i don't think so chat room am i missing anybody am i missing somebody who's an obvious tablet competitor i'm not even talking about Maybe you could say like Google with Android tablets. What is that's good? Google, let's just look at what, what does Google have. Google is weird because so they don't hardware. They don't make that. Other people make it. Maybe they're going to make one someday, kind of like the Nexus, like the Nexus tablet. And they keep saying they're going to do that. Uh, but th- at best, you could say they have uh, you know Google's tablet strategy. They control the hardware about as much as Amazon does because they can have the Nexus created for them by another manufacturer. But it doesn't seem like they're applying the kind of control that Apple applies to the iPad or even that Microsoft applied to the Zune where they're just really paying attention to it and it's something made specifically for them and it's not a parts bin special slapped together. Uh, customers who buy digital content, Google, I think, is trying to collect as much as them as it can. It's got the Google checkout thing, which is that third-party way to buy stuff through other stores, but you use your Google account to do it. Uh, and do they have a music store? I can't even keep track of these things. I think so. Yeah, but but again, I would say maybe they have more customers who are actively buying things with credit cards than Microsoft does, but I don't think they have anywhere close to uh, Apple and Amazon in terms of number of customers, dollars dollars going through them for digital content. Uh, maybe if you aggregated all the all Google checkout third party stuff, it would come out to a lot, but that's not like those aren't like their. I don't know. It's it's not like their customers where they're, they're buying things in their ecosystem. It's like oh, I'm just using Google checkout to buy things at whatever site. Um, software, Google pretty much owns that. They've got the Android platform. It's theirs. It's open source and everything, but they're clearly steering that ship and they keep their stuff to themselves. Um, I, I mean, I guess it's, it's kind of telling that I didn't even put Google on this list and just had to think of it on the fly now because the, the reason people aren't talking about them is we don't, it, it seems like they have the pieces of a platform, but it's just not coherent, Right. And there's not there's not a focus for it. Maybe it's because it's not there's not a hardware focus for it, uh, and it's just it's just too scattershot. Where everybody who makes an Android tablet wants to get like a piece of the pie, and the Samsung Galaxy Tab wants you to to do things. You know, it wants you to buy it, but they're like, well, we don't run the App Store. Samsung doesn't run the App Store, and Samsung doesn't run the Music Store, and Samsung doesn't have content deals. But they'll sell you the hardware that runs the OS made by Google. But they want you to do some Samsungy things too. But it's just it's just too amorphous, and it hasn't solidified. So I, I see Google trying to collect those pieces of the puzzle, but I don't think they're there yet. And uh, so that's why I think we always keep talking about the Kindle. It's nothing to do with the hardware, which everyone agrees is not great. Uh, it's because we see that, like, so fine, your hardware is crappy. It's it's your first shot at it. You're not Apple. You shipped crap. I think it's actually better to ship the crap and get it out of the door and get the ball rolling, mostly because I think people are tolerant of crap hardware and software. Because we know that's fine. Throw that away. Version 2, version 3, version 4. Like, iterate on your Kindle hardware. And I know we had a whole show where I said I thought that it would be more difficult for Amazon to iterate on the, on the Kindle hardware because they don't make enough profit on the hardware. They make their profit on content. And that's a slower burn than making, you know, 100 or, or 200 bucks on the hardware at the point of purchase, right? Depending on how fast they can iterate, we all assume that by version 3 of the Kindle Fire, it won't be so horrible. And they've got all the other pieces in place. Like, they're, all, they're ready to go on all those other fronts. So that's mm-hmm. why they're the, the Apple competitors. Like, we, they've, got it, they've got it set up. They've put in the time, the money, the effort to get all the pieces to have a viable platform. And, yeah, their hardware is crappy. But, like, 
as soon as they get that up, you know, versus the other people were like, well, Microsoft, we, we, you know, they come up with an amazing tablet hardware and we like their Metro OS and everything, but they've got so many other pieces to work on. And it's much easier, I think, to make a competitive tablet piece of hardware than it is to do the content deals, get the users, get the credit cards, get the trust, get people used to buying digital content through you. Like that stuff takes time for people to to get that trust. I, I think I've seen it in, in Apple fans. Most Apple fans are like, oh, I buy my th- stuff through iTunes. And then other people will be like, well, you should try Amazon because their, their MP3 store is cheaper and they have some better videos. And the Apple people are like, yeah, I'm just kind of used to buying things through iTunes. I mean, we all know people like that because we move in Apple circles. It's amazingly hard to, like, there's no reason why you shouldn't buy the Amazon stuff. It's like, oh, I got to do the Amazon downloader and I'm not really familiar with that and I don't really know. And you could say, no, there's no DRM. It's the, the prices are cheaper. They have better content. You should do it. It's so hard to get people off of what they're used to. And I think a lot of people are used to buying things through iTunes. And the, the reverse is true for the people who are not in the Apple ecosystem who are super used to doing stuff through Amazon. And you say, well, you should try iTunes. Like, well, I'm used to doing it through Amazon. I buy it on my TV and they have better content. And it's the, That's a big hill to climb for, for Google, especially because they're not con- their effort is not concentrated and for Microsoft and everybody else. Uh, so I don't think it's a mystery why we keep talking about the fire. And even if even for the people who really hate the hardware, I think if you were to ask Marco, he would say the same thing. It's like the hardware may be hard, but you can see you can see the pieces falling into place. And I think Apple can see them, too. And we all see it as being, uh, you know, we that's why we were talking about it before. And I think that's why we're still talking about it now. We see Amazon as the biggest competitor because it has the closest thing to Apple's platform in terms of quality control and the things that are hard to get, the things that you can't just do one, you know, 12 month development cycle and get arguably software is similar. Uh, and I think Microsoft is proof of that. You can't just, uh, it's not easy to say, Oh, I just need a new mobile operating system. That's why all the hardware only manufacturers are screwed or things like RIM and Palm and stuff like that. But you can't say, all right, so we need uh, we need a platform for this uh, tablet OS. Uh, so can someone write me a tablet OS and a development platform and an SDK and uh, make it competitive with all those other guys who've been doing the same thing for decades. Uh, thanks. Get back to me in twelve months. <laughs> That's super duper hard to do. Uh, Google's struggling to do it now. It's why Rim is dead meat. It's why Palm is already dead. Uh, Elva, they made it. You know, it, Palm shows how hard it is. They made they made a pretty damn good platform in a short period of time. An amazingly good one. It's had a lot of good things going for it, but it just it just wasn't quite good enough. Uh, so we'll continue to watch this space. But I will continue to say it takes a platform, and so far. Apple sure as hell got it, and Amazon looks really close to getting it. Let's do our let's do our first sponsor while you recover from that one. Okay, good idea. In fact, it's our it's our main sponsor. It's Shopify, the internet's most elegant, customizable, and scalable hosted e-commerce platform. A lot of people have been asking me about the five by five T-shirts. What I was going to do originally, you know, I was I was going to uh, just come out with like one, maybe two of them to try and get them out before the holidays. But a lot of people were there clamoring for a hypercritical T-shirt. They're clamoring for uh, Build and Analyze and a whole bunch of others. I said, well, you know, why rush this? If, if we're going to do it, you got to do it right. Is it true that people maybe don't want to spend as much money after the holidays? Maybe because, you know, they're all tapped out. They, they bought everything. But we'll take that risk and we'll we'll do it right. We'll take our time. We're good. So we have a design. There is a hypercritical, a, a John Syracuse approved, as far as you can possibly expect John to approve anything. He has approved a design tentatively 
And uh, I've been working with the, the other hosts on doing designs too. And of course, when I uh, come out with this stuff, who, how do we host? Where do we, where do we put it? Well, build my own store. I could. I've built them before, but uh, that would be the most uh, foolish thing I could ever do. Why? Because Shopify exists. You get your own online store. You can accept credit cards. You use your own domain if you want. We usually do something like shop.5x5.tv or something like that. Uh, but they host everything for you. You can customize it so I can, I can make it look any way I want or I can make it look exactly like 5x5. Five five. It's up to me. And they, because even if I don't, let's say, let's say I think, well, I'm not the best designer in the world. That's certainly true. They have hundreds of professionally designed templates that you can go and some of them are free. Some of them you can pay for, get support for. They accept credit cards. Uh, You can trust these guys. That's what it's all about at the end of the day. It's trust that not only that they'll be secure and PCI compliant and everything else, but that they're better at this than, than you are. They really are. So for a limited time, you can get your first three months free. You just enter discount code 5 by 5 course. Three months free. Check them out at Shopify.com. What do you think about that? People are arguing in the chat room about whether this show is live. Who's the what's that says he used to not listen live because he thought I was a jerk, I yeah. think. Uh, but then he says, is this live? I can't tell. We're talking about the fire and Palm being dead. It's live, people. You're so listening it, live. And if, sorry, if, if you're listening recorded, you're not listening live. Yeah, I was going to say, if, if, you're, if you're, you can hear the sound of our voice right now and it is 12.02 p.m. on December 30th, 2011, you're hearing this live. Otherwise, you are not hearing this live. People should tune in live. I mean, a lot of people don't know about this, but there's there's a whole bunch of ways to do this, and there's more coming. But you can go to 5by5.tv slash live, uh, and you can, you can hear something. Typically, it is pretty much live. You can also find out if it's, uh, if it's live by going to 5by5.tv slash schedule, and that tells you when the shows are going live. And there's even a little app that uh, we did not build this, but one of, our, one of the show's super fans built this david smith it's called five live one word f-i-v-e-l-i-v-e you can find that in the app store maybe we'll even put that in the in the show notes and uh that that's a mac app it runs in your menu bar and it tells you when things are live a lot of cool stuff out there to help you do this and of course there will be an ios app people always ask about it i'll i'll tell you more when i'm ready it's it's in progress yeah, there's lots of ways to know if, if, if we're live. Maybe I should hold up the today's newspaper, the audio equivalent of holding up today's newspaper to show people when it's live. Yeah. I think people should be able to tell. That's on vacation. They're suspicious that we would be uh, doing a podcast, but we are. It's dedication. I have two more things. One is that another follow-up from Marco's thing about music during coding, and then is what was going to be the main topic for the show about Nintendo. Do we have time to do both of them? Or we have I... all the time that you could ever possibly need or want or need. Yeah, it seems like on vacation, at the very least, the shows get longer. But, you know, that's the way it is. All right, so I'll, I'll do my quick little music during coding thing, which is really only tangentially related to our normal topic. So uh, was this the most recent show you and Marco talked about listening to music during coding? Yes. I think, yeah. And you also talked about Office... Uh, space and cubicles and stuff like that. Indeed, and I would like to hear more about uh, both of those uh, from your standpoint, please. All right, so music during coding, I'm just going to 
chime in with my experience. I think you guys covered the topic very well and all the different uh, possibilities and, and the sort of the larger issue. I'll, I'll just give my preferences. Uh, and it'll be interesting to hear people write in to say that they have similar preferences or I'm just crazy. Uh, so I can't listen to music with or without words when writing prose, period. I'm writing, if I'm writing documentation for software, if I'm writing anything, a blog post, uh, an email, anything, no music. No music with lyrics, no music without lyrics, no music, period. I don't know why that is, but I think it's mostly because when when I listen to music in my, like, I'm recreationally, recreationally listening to music, I never have music on in the background. When I'm listening to music, I want to be able to hear all the music, every aspect of the music. It can't just be, like, off in the distance, like an ambient type thing. I'm not an ambient music type of person. And so when I'm writing... I'm thinking about what I'm going to say. I'm rereading the sentence I just wrote, you know, stuff like that. And then this is other person talking in my ear. And even if it's not talking, talking, this is other music talking in my ear. And my attention is divided. I, I want to pay. I like the song. I want to pay attention to the song, but I can't pay attention to the song and write at the same time. So no music during writing. Uh, music during coding. Pretty much the same thing. If I am writing new code or thinking about code or doing doing any, anything where I'm actually typing in code statements and stuff like that, or even, I guess, just reading code, uh, no music, no instrumental music, no, uh, no music with lyrics. For the same reason, because, like, my internal dialogue about reasoning about the code or thinking about what I'm going to write is in competition with my brain's desire to actually listen to the music. Because I'm, if I have music on, it's music that I'm interested in. I just can't stand background music. If, if music I don't like, I don't want it to be playing. If music is, I do like, I want to be actively listening to it. Every part of it. Uh, and I think that there's a big divide between people who are like, when you listen to music, do you listen to music? Like, do you, do you, are you really like 100% invested in listening to that music? Or do you just like it on in the background? Mm. And there's, you know, ignoring coding entirely, I think there's a big split in people between people who actively listen to music and who don't. Uh, and you can kind of tell on the taste in the music. Like if someone is really into music with really complicated lyrics or uh, Dylan type songs where the lyrics are a big part of an enjoyment or whatever, you have to be actively listening to that. Otherwise, you're not getting half of the enjoyment out of the music, or even if it's just like a guitar solo or whatever. It's, it, you know, versus people who are just like, I just like on in the background. It's just kind of like noise, and you know, mm -hmm. they seem to have they're less picky about their music because it's just like, well, it's not offensive to me, and it kind of sounds nice. And occasionally, if I tune in, I'm like, oh yeah, that's neat, and I go back to what I was doing. Uh, now, th there's some exceptions to this, and I think it has to do with which parts of the brain are engaged during processes during uh, during listening. One exception is if I am tweaking HTML or CSS, like go back to the HTML and the CSS, fiddle with it, go back to the browser, uh, reload, take a look at the changes, go, you know, that work loop, type, type some stuff in, reload the page, look at the page, and then repeat. Visual debugging like that, I can have music on. Lyrics, without lyrics, it doesn't matter. I think it's because the language centers of my brain are not engaged because everything I'm doing, even though CSS is like coding or whatever, it's just, it's not, I'm not writing code, I'm just tweaking parameters and you know at, the loop is mostly visual mm -hmm. look at how it looks see if stuff's lined up the way you want you know go back turn on borders go go into the little debugger thing fiddle with the css attributes reload i can do visual stuff like that while listening to music and and actually i feel like i'm really listening to and enjoying the music while some other part of my brain does this visual task of like design layout and stuff like that and i guess at this point the coding aspect of html and css is kind of like driving where 
your body knows how to do it and you're not consciously thinking about it and you're not like puzzling over which CSS attribute you need to change because you've done this 8 million times before and it kind of becomes like rote, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And sometimes music is okay during debugging. When I'm like, you know, this thing didn't work, I'm in the debugger, I'm stepping through the code, inspect this value step, inspect, you know, it's very similar to the the work cycle of, or the work loop of HTML, CSS, because it's like execute up to a point, inspect some values, didn't work, tweak something, execute back up to that point. Uh, so much so that I actually have a favorite debugging song <laughs> which I used to use all the time. <laughs> if I'm if I'm getting into a hardcore debugging session, I would always put on the Imperial March. Because the Imperial March is, Oh, was, come on. Yes, this is my debugging song. <laughs> the Imperial March is like I'm, you know, I'm going to figure out why this is oh, working. No. I'm going to go in there and crush those bugs. And <laughs> hopefully by the time that song ends, uh, I will have found the bug and, and gotten rid of it. Now say I'm trying to debug it and I realize <laughs> And I realized, oh, my God, I've made a horrible logic error. This oh, is God. never going to work because I've structured this thing wrong. Music's got to go off because now it's just like, all right, game time out. I'm not just like debugging, like tweaking something and figuring out some little. I, I've made a logic error here. This thing is structured incorrectly. This is never going to work. I need to refactor stuff. Music goes off. Uh, you also mentioned listening to podcasts. It's the same type of thing. I can listen to a podcast. The only difference is that I'm willing to let a podcast go off into the background of my consciousness because I'll know that, well, you know, if I miss it, I will listen to the entire episode later <laughs> in a recorded version. And so I have often have the podcast on live when I'm at work. And if I need to tune out to do stuff, I'll do so. Occasionally, if I need to really hardcore work, I'm like, I can't even just tune this out. I got to turn it off. Uh, that's basically if I'm frustrated by a technical problem or if I need to do hardcore thinking, I can't have things in my ear talking to me. And are you an active music listener or are you a background music listener? Ignoring coding, just saying like music in general. Yeah. If I am, if I am listening to music, it is generally one of the primary activities that I'll engage in. The, the other primary activity could be, for example, walking, driving, uh, may, maybe browsing. And very much depending on the music, potentially reading. But if if I am in the process of actively creating something, let's say uh, typing code, writing text, doing even email, that kind of thing, then for me, any kind of music would be pretty much a distraction. I'll, I'll tell you, though, there are some exceptions if it's purely instrumental, uh, and instrumental in a sense of not like rock and roll instrumental, but instru instrumental in maybe like classical music or something like that, th then there might be a situation where I could have that going. But typically, no. Typically, I, I, I don't. I just find that stuff to be a distraction. And I also, f you know, I feel like for, for me, and maybe this is because I've uh, I, I, I would hesitate to call myself a musician because uh, that implies that I'm actually any good anymore, maybe. But for, for many, many years, I played uh, a, several different instruments. Uh, and when I, I, I see music as something that it, it activates a part of my brain, I'm thinking about the music, I'm, I'm enjoying the music, I'm listening to it. Uh, I'm thinking if, if it has a guitar in it or, or, or something, I might be thinking, oh, I wonder how they're playing that piece. If it's just regular music, I'm, I'm engaged in it. You know, I want to engage in that music. I don't really see it as something that just go, you put on and 
in the background because then it sort of becomes a distraction. Uh, and what's weird to me is this. Most of the developers that I talk to and, and designers, people who listen to music while they're working, m- much of the time, much of the time, they say that they are doing it to block out the other noise. I think Marco had mentioned that was part of the reason why he listened to music, especially back when he was working at, uh, you know, as an employee of, of Tumblr and other places, is that it was an open office. He didn't want to hear other people's noise, so he would play music. Well, to me, that that's just a different kind of noise that's a distraction. Maybe it's less of, maybe hearing your, you know, background music is less of a distraction than hearing, you know, Frank and Cube next door yawning or talking to his wife, but it it's still a type of distraction. Whereas, so that's how we got into the conversation of, of talking about like white noise generators and things like that, which if you want to block out sound or you want to create sound in, in a vacuum of sound, then using something like that uh, is, uh, I, th- I think it, it solves the problem pretty well. It's almost kind of like offensive to me that, uh, I don't know, like I maybe I'm feeling offense on behalf of the artist that, that people would listen to music and not <laughs> right. be 100% engaged to listen to it. Like, this, people pour their lives into making this song. Right. Or perhaps this is one of the greatest songs, greatest rock songs ever created, and you're you're not even going to listen to it. Right, you're, you're going like, to well, throw that in the background. It's like disrespectful. It's, it's, like, it's like this, and this I think more people can relate to. I can't stand it when people gather and they say they want to watch a movie and nobody freaking watches the movie. And they just talk. Or it's just so on in the not background. in a movie theater, like in your house. Obviously, in a movie theater, there's etiquette, and people we can all be annoyed of, like someone who's like chatting with their friend. But you you've paid money, you come to see the movie. But everyone kind of agree. Don't be sitting there talking to your friend about what happened to Stacy last week or whatever. Like that's it's inappropriate and it's rude. In people's houses, though, where they can choose to do whatever they want, some people can't stand like the, oh, well, let's just put a movie on and sit down to watch it. But they won't, you know, movie fans and people who are like, you know, into movies would uh, find it completely offensive. And I'm one of these people that, that you would put on a movie and not devote a hundred percent of your attention to that movie, which is why we don't want to watch a movie when the kids are awake, when in the middle of doing something else while we're also, you know, doing our taxes or, you know, even, you know, we devote a hundred percent of our attention to the movie when it's on the screen uh, because we're movie fans and out of sort of respect for the medium. And that's what we want to do. Now, people, I'm not saying you're a bad person if you don't want to do that, but I'm saying there's two types of people. Right. People people who don't want, don't feel the need to give 100% of their attention find it horrible that it's like, oh, I want to be doing other things. I don't want to be sitting there, like, staring at the movie screen, paying 100% of attention. That's not, you know, that's not my idea of a good time. And it annoys them that, you know, we have these rules. Oh, well, he's here. We got to actually pay attention to the movie and watch it. Right, what can't. a downer he is. Yeah. It's just two different types of people and the things that we prefer. Uh, so music, I think more people can relate to that in movies because we do have that movie theater experience where we all kind of agree socially, you're supposed to be there to watch the movie. And if you're not interested in the movie, leave or whatever, but don't start some other activity that disturbs your, the other people who are watching. Whereas in the living room, everyone all seems to be okay with, oh, let's put on this movie. But then because people aren't interested in the movie or it's not a good movie or they're distracted or whatever, they just, they don't pay attention to it. Yeah. And they just start talking to the other people next to them. And it's not a movie theater. It's their house. They're allowed to do that, but it bothers us, you know? So music is the same way for me. That, that's why if it's on in my ear, I want to be actively listening to it. And if I can't be actively listening to it, it's, it's too much tension between must actively listen to song that I really like. Oh no, but I have to do this. You know, it's, it's, it's too much push pull there. Yeah. 
Uh, and I don't want to go into the open office, closed office cubicle thing because I think you guys covered it very well. I don't really have anything I, to. I would. Well, I would. I would like to ask you about that if, if possible. Uh, well, I um, I, I have everything you said. I agree with it. Well, what if what if people don't listen to that show? What if they've never heard that show? They don't care about that show. All right, so I will. The the pros and cons of open seating, uh, and I'll say that I am actually in open seating now. Uh, What Marco said, and I agree with, is that open seating is really good for collaboration. If you're like working with a bunch of other people, you don't have to to do the prairie dogging, which they call it when you pop up your head to see over the tall cubicle wall. (laughs) That's right. The other person, hey, or talk through the fabric cubicle wall because they're mostly acoustically transparent, which is part of the the cons that we'll get to in a second. Uh, we're just kind of in all the room together and, you know, works for startups. So we're just talking to each other and just working together on a problem. Uh, it's great for that. Great for communication. Obviously budget wise, it's great because, uh, that, that office furniture is really expensive. But the other thing is that if you do offices, it costs so much money and to actually put physical walls and doors. And the real thing is like, no matter how you lay out the physical walls and doors, like when you buy an office, if there are physical walls and doors there, they're probably not laid out the way you want them. So you got to tear it all out and put in your own walls. And the next person to do the same thing is just tremendously expensive to do real offices the way you want them. And it's very painful to just say, well, we can't afford to tear down the walls. So we'll just kind of use the walls the way they are. But this office is kind of big, so we'll pack four people into it. And it's just horrible and awkward. Open seating gives you the most flexibility. It's by far the cheapest. And it does have those pros of, of collaboration. The cons, obviously, are when you don't want to collaborate and just want to concentrate then you're forced to try to put yourself into some sort of sensory isolation bubble with white nose headphones, noise canceling headphones, visual blinders, you know, using the monitors to block out views, all that stuff. Uh, and I agree with Marco that I don't think open seating is some sort of Dilbert esque plot to oppress <laughs> work. Uh, <laughs> like for instance, forcing them all to use windows, which is a Dilbert esque <laughs> plot to, uh, to, uh, to oppress workers. It's just, you know, there are pros, there are cons, especially in startup environments. The pros usually outweigh the cons. And even, you know, even not in a startup environment, the the pros of uh, price-wise and flexibility-wise in terms of reshuffling the space as you grow and shrink and your roles change and teams, you know, shift around, open seating is by far the winner there. That said, uh, in my previous job, I was in cubicles for most of the time and eventually got to the point where I had an office with a door. I love having an office with a door. I'm sad that I don't have one now. Uh, as an anti-social misanthrope programmer, I don't mind not being able to quickly communicate with people in person because I can just send them an IM uh, or walk over to their desk. I have no problem with that. In fact, it's good to get up every once in a while. Uh, but I recognize the economic impossibility of giving every single programmer their own desk, a la uh, Joel Spolsky and Fog Creek Software. For most people, they can't pull that off. Uh, it just doesn't work out price. And I liked your, your comments about how it's just so much cheaper to have these people telecommute. And I know many people who work in companies that are virtual companies that don't have any home headquarters at all. And everybody telecommutes and it works out, you know, so there's some businesses that it lends itself to, and that gives you, it gives you a private office as well. Yeah. I think, I mean, I, that was, that was the one thing that since that show, uh, that I, I've thought about the most, just to, agree with you more is that telecommuting it's i I looked at the numbers again back from when we were making these decisions and because we keep looking i keep looking for an office or studio space here it's it's thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars for this for a small space for a small unless you're out in you know really truly in the middle of nowhere anything that's even close to to a city even even 
Orlando. It costs thousands of dollars to create the kind of space that you actually would want to go to. Thousands. Whereas even if you have five employees, 10 employees, more, the cost to just get them a laptop, which you're going to need to buy them a computer anyway, or a Mac Pro or whatever it is that they need, you're still going to have to buy them the same computer. The only cost then is that now you're paying them uh, you're paying for their internet, which is what, 50 bucks Fifty bucks a month? You want to be nice and get them a phone line? I'm not even saying you have to pay for their phone. A lot of the time you can get one of those, you know, now I'm not saying Vonage, uh, but a lot of the local cable companies will, for an extra 15 bucks a month, they'll give you a crappy phone line, you know, voice over IP phone line. That they, That's gotten a lot better. So for 60, 60 bucks a month, 70 bucks a month, that you're paying for them to work from home? That's... You know, even if you get twenty employees, you're still not even at the at the cost of yeah, having. Once office. you have two thousand employees, though, like this experiment of of having virtual companies and people working from home is in its infancy. Very, uh, as compared to the history of people working and going to a building to work, going to a factory to work, or whatever. Like there's right. an established history of how that works, and we are, you know, those of us who are younger and who worked in environments like this are kind of scaling up. Like, all right, so I can telecommute with two people company. 20-person company, we can still do it. We'll use Google Hangout, we'll chat, we'll email, we'll do conference calls. And you keep scaling up and up, but like at a certain point, this and this is obviously for businesses where you don't have to actually be there. Obviously, if you work in the, uh, what is it called, uh, fulfillment? Uh, what do they call it? The people who put the stuff in boxes for like Amazon. Yeah, sure. You got to be there. Yeah, there's a lot of the stuff box, where you have you know, to be It's obviously a business where you have to be there. But for businesses like ours that deal with writing code and stuff like that, uh, you can have people virtual... I will say that there is some overhead in terms of figuring out how to get everybody set up. It's a lot less with nerds because we kind of know how things work and, you know, but like, can you imagine setting up every single employee in a 2000 person company at home? A lot of those people aren't going to know how all this crazy internet stuff works. You just assume that nerds know about IM, IRC, Skype. Right. You, you, you only want to do this with people who you don't think you're going to have to do a heck of a lot of support fit. You know, I'm talking about computer support. You want to do this with people who are competent and who, if you're like, do you know how to pair a Bluetooth mouse? And they're like, what's a mouse? You're not gonna, they're not going to be able to work from home. No, the costs suddenly go up then for those people because now right. you've got to like send the remote support guy out there and you have to keep coming back. And now you're losing productivity because they're spending all the time screwing with their equipment and not doing the thing <laughs> you're supposed to be paying them right. for. And that, that becomes, uh, you know, so it's not, nothing is a cure. All these, these situations we discussed, private offices, uh, you know, cubicles, open office, they all have pros and cons. And as you said, it's that's the challenge of building a business is, you know, everyone's going to be unhappy about something, whether it's the thermostat or the cubicles or the offices. You cannot make everybody happy. Even if you said, welcome, new employee to Acme Company. What would you like? You can work from home. You can work here. You can have an office. You can have an open office. You can have a cubicle. You can. And they every single employee got to pick everything about their experience. They would still be upset because they're like, well, the whole reason I wanted open seating is because I want to talk to all my friends, but all my friends are in offices. So what the heck is the point of me having open seating? And right. I don't like it. I wanted open seating because I wanted the 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 pros of open seating, but now I'm not getting it. There is no way to make everybody happy. So uh, a business, building a business like that, it's an exercise in compromise. And I, I actually kind of respect the stance of any company that says, look, because we recognize there's no way we're going to make everybody happy. We're going to have a, a culture in this company of doing X, whatever X is. Everyone has private offices. Everybody telecommutes. Everybody's open seating or whatever. And and we're going to say that's the kind of company we are. And if you don't like that company, kind of company, don't come work here. Uh, so Fog Creek is famous. Uh, Joel Spolsky Software Company is famous for saying all programmers get their own office. If you really like open seating and the environment that that provides, 
don't go work at Fog Creek because they're going to give you a private office. And you can't say, well, I would really like to have open seating. You'll be the only one there, yeah. right? Everyone will be in their offices. So that kind of culture, you know, uh, ma- making a stand and, you know, weighing the options and, and deciding what you're going to do, I, I think that's the only sane way forward. You can't, you're not going to make all people happy. Just decide as the founders of the company what kind of culture you want your company to have and be flexible in terms of changing with the times. Uh, mostly, I would say, going towards having more telecommuters instead of fewer. Uh, but yeah, it's it's not it's not a clear cut issue. Even, even if you brought Joel and he would say, "Oh, you programmers have to have private offices." I believe in uh, as someone who loves having a private office. I believe in all of the pros that he's talking about. But I also know there are people out there who don't agree with his stance on private offices, not for economic reasons, but purely because they just like the environment of being like in a room with their friends with open seating in a startup environment. Uh, and neither one of those people is wrong. It's just differences of preference. Except for the ones who don't want the private offices and those are the people who are wrong. Yeah, I, you know, I guess I didn't... How long did I have my private office? Not not long enough. Uh, I I guess I didn't experience... It, it, the, the reason I didn't experience many of the cons of having a private office, I think, is because I had been with the company for a long time at that point, knew all the people that I was working with. Uh, and so there wasn't this barrier of like, how am I going to get to know this person if we're constantly in separate rooms? Like... Is that is that yeah. the biggest complaint do you think that people have that it's about getting to know the other person? If you're working closely with somebody, whether they're your direct reports or your you know siblings in the org chart or whatever, <laughs> it does it does help to have a relationship with them. Very it eases, true, especially for programmers who are like you know shy and don't like talking to other people and stuff like that. It, it it helps to be able to just feel comfortable firing off a quick technical question or knowing who knows what about what, and so you don't have to survey every single employee. Hey, do you know about the the Frobnitz widget? No, talk to this guy. Hey, I heard you know about the Frobnitz widget. Oh, actually, I don't. But check, you know, that that's inefficient or whatever, you know. And if you're all together, that exchange can just be, you know, yelling out to the room full of people and then sort of collaborating on an answer versus sending out a bunch of IMs or whatever. But if you have people, if you have established relationships and you know all the people, uh, have the ability to have a private office to to get your work done by closing the door, to not have to have headphones on. And, you know, white noise or music or something playing to block out the sounds from the other things for programming and to have sort of ability to say, please don't interrupt me with a door that closes instead of like a little flag on the back of your head or some other way that you signal to everybody that you need 15 minutes of uninterrupted time to work out this problem because, you know, that's that's nice. That wasn't quick, but doesn't need to. Who cares? It doesn't need to be quick. All right. Well, we're in for another long one today. No time limits on this show. This is, this is John's show. Yeah. Or you want to do a sure. second sponsor? Well, we don't have a second sponsor, really, but what we should do is we should talk about the show notes. Go to 5x5.tv slash hypercritical slash 48, and you will be able to see all of the links and everything else that we have discussed uh, today, Any anything relevant to the show as, as we're doing the show and prior to the show. And, of course, John Syracuse has in there after the show. Uh, documenting all of this, making sure that if if he mentioned some thing, whatever it is, that it will be in these show notes. There are all the links there. Now, if you subscribe to 5 by 5 via RSS, instead of just through iTunes, you can see the show notes there. Otherwise, you just go to the, the page and uh, all, of, all of them will be there. I, I can't tell you how frequently I get an email uh, from people who said, I heard you mentioned this thing on this episode. Can you send me the link to that? And I'd send them the link to the show because the show notes are 
right there. So go there, check there first. We, we really try hard to put all of the links there. And of course, we have a sponsor of, of those links in those show notes. It's HelpSpot, the, uh, the best darn help desk software in the universe. I'm giving them that. They can run with that. That's theirs. Uh, so there's a little link to help uh, help spot there too if you want to learn more about that. I use that software all the time. Back in the days when we were when I was working at a hosting company, I used it. Two or three other companies, I'd come in and they they'd be doing all their help desk stuff with like email. They'd get like a thousand emails a day, and I said, "What are you What are you doing?" Well, this we'll use. This will we know how to use. So I'd set them up with uh, with help spot, and I'd pretty much be able to just kick back and. Watch a cash roll in. You ready for Nintendo? Nintendo still haven't uh, still haven't been able to. I, I'm a little ner- a little nervous to start this whole thing. It's not like I don't know. I'm, it this bit about Nintendo was triggered by an exchange I had on Twitter, which was in reaction to a blog post from our old pal who seems to be the star of Hypercritical lately, Guy English. Uh, so it's not going to be a comprehensive <laughs> look at gaming or Nintendo, although I will do a little bit of Nintendo background mixed in here. Because I have one minor point to make about his blog post, and then I will expand that into a little bit ah. of the parallels of Nintendo and Apple. Okay. So like that. So this started in my in my notes structure with a post from October, believe it or not, about uh, Nintendo uh, posting some losses. Nintendo posts first half loss in earnings report slashes forecast yet again. So I'm sure there are better links for more updated things. This is from October 27th about uh, Nintendo not doing well financially, which is a big change because they used to be going gangbusters in right. the past couple of years. Sure. Making money hand over fist, huge profits, selling tons of product, just really dominating in the handheld gaming space particularly and also uh, doing very well in the uh, home console space. Uh, and this... This is kind of like, I mean, this will happen when Apple first posts like its first loss, which will happen sometime. Eventually, it's going to happen in our lifetimes, I'm sure. Of You know, a company coming off what looked like just an unstoppable run, and it's a big story when their fortunes reverse. And everyone asks, why? Why? Why is Nintendo not doing well? What's the problem? Oh, my God, this is a big story. Nintendo posting losses instead of profits. And I had them in the notes for a while. Uh, but the thing that brought it back now is this post by Guy English on his Kicking Bear blog. And it's a very short post. He talks about, uh, the title is Alan Kay and Nintendo. Uh, and he references the Alan Kay quote, people who are really serious about software should make their own hardware. Uh, have you heard that quote before? Yes. It's, I think it's pretty commonly known, uh, but people who don't have the context for it, he was speaking, well, when, when did he actually say this? I, he said it in 1982, but I believe it was in reference to uh, even earlier work. Uh, the... The concept behind it is like so. Why, if you're if you're serious about software, what would have? Why would that have anything to do with hardware? If you're serious about software, wouldn't you be into like programming and programming languages and making great software and software development practice and stuff? What that has nothing to do with hardware, and you you don't want the hardware to be that. You just want it to run your software, right? What he meant by that was that software, the hardware, necessarily constrains what we do with our software. So, for example, Xerox Park and uh, those other research institutions. What they were doing there was not just let's let's you know let's examine what kind of different software we can write. They needed different hardware to do the things they wanted to do in software. They need, they wanted a bitmap display, which was you know new for the time. They wanted to have mouse input method. Those are not software component. Like it's a software concept. Like we're going to have a bitmap display where every dot on the screen is controlled by some piece of memory, and we want to have a drawing system that rasterizes the mathematical shapes to the series of dots that are on and off. You know, 
that whole concept, which didn't, you know, that, that's what they were exploring. It was new. It was different than character-based input where there was a prompt and you type something and you hit return. And it, you know, it's a new paradigm. To do that new software paradigm, you needed new hardware and also networking, you know, a ubiquitous networking. What would it be like if all the computers could talk to each other? They had to invent Ethernet. They had to build a mouse. They had to make a computer capable of, of having a bitmap display with, you know, the memory, uh, the video memory, all that stuff. To do what they wanted to do, their vision was not just software. It was software and hardware hand in hand. And that's what he meant by people who are really serious about software. If you want to know, like, what's possible with software, you can't say, you can't add, like, this, uh, you know, implicit qualifier within the realm of the hardware available to us at the time. You have to say, no, if I want to do something with software, if I have this vision in my head of a bitmap display, I think that could be the way computers work in the future. If there doesn't exist a computer capable of looking at but well, you got to make you got to make that computer. You got to make the Lisp machine. You got to make the you know the Xerox Star. You got to you got to invent Ethernet. You you know you have to if you're really serious about software, you have to make your own hardware. And that's he was coming off the experiences uh, of actually doing that and saying you know listen people, I know you think you know you can just do software, but you can't hardware. It's it's all it's all the piece. And you if you're serious about it, you got to do both sides. Um, and. The, uh, I'll get back to what he said in the rest of that post and having to do Nintendo, but uh, to, there was a Twitter exchange related to that where a guy posted about, uh-oh, now Nintendo's really in trouble, which is a story on The Verge about uh, Shigeru Miyamoto retiring from Apple or retiring from his current position. That article has since been updated with a statement from Nintendo saying, here, I'll quote the statement, although it's translated, so it's very difficult. I think that's, that's a lot of why, where this story came from is bad translation of stuff that Miyamoto said off the cuff. Nintendo says, this is absolutely not true. There seems to have been a misunderstanding. He, meaning Miyamoto, has said all along that he wants to train the younger generation. Right. He has no intention of stepping down. Please do not be concerned. Right. Uh, Pay no attention know, to the warnings of him stepping down. Yeah. And so for those who don't know, Shigeru Miyamoto is the creator of Mario, Donkey Kong, Zelda, a couple of other names you might have heard of. He is, he is the Steve Jobs of Nintendo. And he is the, he's the Steve Jobs of the video game industry, for those people who want to need some context. He is clearly recognized as the most successful, most influential creative, creative professional working in video games. And he works for Nintendo, and he always has. And so any hint of him retiring is met with concern. So that guy tweeted that, and there's a link to that in the show notes, and you can see the update on the thing and chase it down yourself to see, was it really a mistranslation? Is he actually retiring? You know. Anyway, sideshow. Uh, so then... Uh, Daniel Jowkett uh, responded to Guy's post, uh, kind of a combination, as far as I can tell, a combination of responding to Nintendo being in trouble and responding to uh, the Alan Kay quote in, uh, in Guy's blog post saying, personally, I think the Alan Kay quote about making one's hardware is outdated from an era when suitable hardware didn't exist. And, and you know, the, the discussion we just had about, uh, about the hardware is true, the hardware didn't exist, and but uh, Daniel saying, well, you know, now we've got the hardware, so I don't think that's the case. I think you can be serious about software because we've got the hardware. And my response to that was, today's hardware is suitable, in scare quotes, for the software designed in Kay's day. So in other words, we now have the hardware to realize all of the visions that Alan Kay had in 1970-whatever. Right? But new software paradigms needs new hardware. It's like, you know, you think, oh, everything's been invented. We've got the hardware. We've got bitmap displays. We've got the GUI. Like, we're all set. If Alan Gay had thought that in 1970 or whatever, and all the people at Xerox Park, they never would have invented all of that other stuff. We're like, oh, we've got that. We've got personal computers. We've got we've got a teletype, you know, terminal. Uh, we, you know, I've got a character-based display. This is all we're ever need. I don't need, you know. We, we're finally we're away from throwing switches. We've got keyboards. We can <laughs> type characters in. We don't 
use punch cards. We don't use tape. The hardware finally exists. If they had thought that, they would never have gone anywhere. Today's hardware is suitable for yesterday's software invention. The fut- what, what that statement is talking about is the future of software depends on new hardware paradigms here. And I give some examples. I mean, we can see the examples, and we'll get back to Nintendo in a second. But we've got the Wii. The, uh, Microsoft's Connect is a great example, successful or not. It's clear that they had a vision of how software can work that requires really new hardware. A bunch of cameras looking at you, an IR sprayer, a, you know, <laughs> making depth maps of, you know, trying to recognize things. That You can't do that software without that piece of hardware. And the Wiimote, you know, waving things around, accelerometers, gyroscopes, even the iPad with the capacitive touchscreen. I mean, touchscreens existed for a long time, but imagine if the iPad came out with a pressure-sensitive touchscreen. That product is, is crap. That product is a dud. Right or the the iPhone or the iPad with a pressure sensitive touchscreen. What's the difference between pressure sensitive touchscreen and capacitive? It seems like a subtle difference, but it's it's big. It is a big, big, big difference. There's a reason all those touchscreen devices with pressure sensitive stuff didn't catch on. That that distinction between having to press down on the squishy plastic thing and just being able to tap on a piece of glass. That's maybe this is an instance where I'm doing what I talked about earlier in the show and overplaying a distinction that's not that different to lay people, but I, I think in this case I'm not because pressure-sensitive touchscreens did exist and people, you know, they use them with the palm with a little pokey pen, but they don't work that well with your finger and people don't want to press really hard with their finger. People do press really hard on those iPad screens, though, I see. But I, I think that even for <laughs> the touch stuff, there needed to be not like a hardware invention or revolution because capacitive touchscreens weren't like invented recently, but, you know, the hardware is part of the software solution. Um, and I think that was a change from the, the hardware that was there before. Like, you can't do iOS without that capacitive touchscreen, I think. You just can't. It doesn't feel yeah. the same. It doesn't work the same. You can't flick things up and down if you have to actually apply pressure to get it to sense where your fingers are. It just doesn't work. Hardware and software hand in hand. So uh, I definitely think that that Alan Kay quote was true then and continues to be true now. And the fact that the, the trap of thinking that it's not true, like just being, you know, being content with what we have and saying, wow, we've got amazing stuff now. Finally, you know, as a software developer, I really, I can, you know, really make this hardware sing. I bet you can. But what he's saying about people who are really serious about software, it's kind of backhanded. you are like, well, if you, if you don't make your own hardware, you're not serious. No, you're 100% serious. If you're making awesome applications for existing hardware, that's great. We need people to do that. But what he means is if you want to push the limits, if you want to see what, that's great. What is software going to be like in the next decade? You, hardware has to be a part of that. So now I will finally circle back to what uh, Guy English said in the rest of his post about this. So he quotes the Alan Kay thing and he says, I agree and I think that's totally true that people who are serious about software need to make their own hardware. And he says, and, uh, and then I say that Nintendo should start developing games for iOS. Which is contradiction to what he just said. You know, it's an intentional contradiction saying, I really agree that you have to, uh, you know, if you're serious about software, you have to make your own hardware. But given all the stuff that's happening with Nintendo and their losses and everything, that they need to just bite the bullet and say, you know, we Nintendo are going to bring Mario, Zelda, what, you know, whatever, Donkey Kong, our franchises, our software, our obvious video game software design skills to iOS, a platform that we don't own, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and then he does that. Uh, he, he elaborates on this with the Star Wars quote, which I will now perform for you. Don't be too proud of this technological terror you've constructed. The ability to control the interaction direction of an entire industry is insignificant compared to the power of creativity. That was a bad Darth Vader impression, but there it was. Uh, so what he's saying by communicating to his fellow geeks through uh, Star Wars references is that, yeah, it's great that you have your own hardware platform, you know, 
and you control it and you can do all this innovative stuff on it and everything. But really, it, your creativity is your real asset. Don't don't get too tied up in the fact that you've got your own platform and you can make your own hardware and you can make these little waggly remotes and everything like that. Also recognize that the creative power of the people who make your software is just too important to to keep penned up like this. Uh, and the reason he, and he this the context this comes up in is because of the losses. If Nintendo was still going gangbusters, why would you ever tell them, "Oh, you got to change what you're doing"? A lot of people do it with Apple all the time. You're that's you're massively successful. Uh, now change how you do things, please, because uh, we think you're doing them wrong. And this this brings me to I'm going to do kind of a a brief history of Nintendo and how. Oh. How they, how it parallels how Nintendo parallels other companies that uh, we may be more familiar with from the rest of the industry. Okay, and then I'll then we'll see where I come down on this whole idea of Nintendo either stopping making hardware, becoming software only, or bringing its software to other platforms or stuff like that. Uh, so uh, Guy talks about this in his post, but for those who don't know, uh, and Nintendo was. Uh, do you know this? You probably see it in my show notes already, so it's cheating. But did you did, did you know not. Nintendo? So do you know when Nintendo was founded? 2008. Try, how about a serious guess? No, I, I do know that Nintendo was some... <laughs> I'm not looking at the show notes. I did not look at this particular link. But I know that they were not a video game company. They were some other company. They made some, you know, like something you would not expect them to make. They made cardboard boxes or something strange like that. And I, I, I'm going to say it was sometime in the 70s. So Nintendo, I forget what it was called. I think I have it in my notes here, whatever. But the, the, the company we now know as Nintendo, that was always called Nintendo, followed by some other words, was founded in 1889. Oh, man. <laughs> if you are not a serious video game nerd, that may be shocking to you. 1889, it was founded. Wow. Uh, and they made all sorts of things. They made. Uh, they, were, they were most successful in making... I may, I, I'm going to do my best in the Japanese pronunciations here, people. If you have corrections, feel free to send them in. Um, I'm doing my best. Uh, Hanafuda cards, which is a, some sort of uh, Japanese uh, card game that's popular in Japan, like playing cards, basically. Uh, and, you know, you can imagine those being manufactured in 1889 because playing cards have been around for a really long time. Uh, the company was founded by Fusajiro Yamauchi. Not Yamaguchi. Yeah, Yamauchi. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I got Yamauchi right. I was a little bit guessy on uh, Fusajiro. Hmm. Uh, and so in, in 19, that, that's like the, the pre, you know, so they, they did all sorts of stuff for a long time with the playing cards and everything. Uh, and then in 1956, we fast forwarded now from 1889 to 1956. This just shows how fast business changes nowadays. Nowadays, companies come and go and blink into and out of existence and change their entire businesses overnight. But here's a company that went from 1889 to 1956, more or less making playing cards and other type of game things for its home country of Japan. And so in 1956, Hiroshi Yamauchi was the grandson of Fusajiro Yamauchi. Uh, uh, is that when he took over? Uh, I, don't, I don't know when he took over. I had the date, but it, in this, the data I have on the Wikipedia page here is uh, so he, he took over. The grandson of the company took over. So here's the company. It's still in the family and they're making playing cards. And he visited uh, the U.S., to uh, to talk to other playing card manufacturers and stuff. And he was talking to the, the world's biggest playing card manufacturer. And when he visited them, he saw the size of the offices of the world's biggest playing card manufacturer. And it wasn't that impressive. And so uh, this is the point where he said, hmm, 
you know, we're, we're trying to do the deal with this. We're, we are not the biggest playing card manufacturer in the world. We're big in Japan, but we're talking to the U.S. company and they're they're the biggest in the world. And it's not really that impressive. So <laughs> what the realization came to is if we are massively successful and just crush every other playing card manufacturer in the world, we'll still be kind of dinky and crappy. And uh, so this, according to the Wikipedia page that I got this from anyway, uh, was a turning point when he said, oh, we got to get into a different business because playing cards is not where it's at. And I think this is a smart move in 1956 to say playing cards. And they've taken us from 1889 until now. Maybe we should we should branch out. And so the, the oh, here's the name. The Nintendo Playing Card Company Limited was renamed to just Nintendo Company Limited in 1963. And so this guy, Hiroshi Yamauchi, ruled over Nintendo sort of like, I mean, it's easy. Every t- story you see about this guy will make some reference to a Japanese emperor because he's the head of a Japanese company. And, it, you know, it fits. But seriously, he was like a, a Japanese emperor, right down to the craziness, just very angry and demanding and fiery and ruling with an iron fist. And so he did all sorts of things that weren't playing cards. They had a taxi company, a love hotel, uh, selling instant rice, uh, all, all sorts of things. He was basically, you know, he was (laughs) trying to find some way to make this company of his, that he inherited his family business to be bigger. And he was willing to try everything. Uh, one of the things that he eventually tried, and I'm sure he tried these things. He also reminds me of Steve Jobs in that you don't think he's out there thinking up these things. It's just like some underling will come to him and say, I think we should make a love hotel. He's like, good, go for it. See how that works out. <laughs> and he makes the love hotel. It's like, no, that sucks. Try something right. else. Like, what it's else just it's just a hobby for us. <laughs> Instant noodles. Like what he'll, he'll entertain all suggestions for, <laughs> for what you want the company to do. Well, one of the suggestions was maybe we should make something, one of those things you hook up to your TV to play video games. Uh, and this was right after the Atari crash. Atari had been the dominant company in the U.S., maybe in the world, for things that you hook up to your television to play video games on. And it was a big a big hit, and everybody loved it, even though it wasn't as good as the arcade machines. But eventually, that entire market crashed. Uh, and most people think it's because too many crappy games were created. People saw that you could make a video game by hiring, by finding some hippie nerd in California, paying him like 70 grand, which he would be happy to have, to make some, you know, uh, either a new video game made out of whole cloth or like a port of, of an arcade video game that you licensed from some other company, put it on a cartridge and make massive money selling this. Like we just, you know, our fixed costs were like 70 grand plus the cost of manufacturing cartridges. And then we sell these games for whatever, like huge, it, you know, software has good margins, even when the software comes on hardware. And, and all because we pay this one hippie dude to make this thing. And so everybody saw that as a make money fast scheme. They're like, well, we, we can make a game. Let's make a game. I'll just pay somebody, make some dots go on the screen. Like, those people didn't know, didn't know what made a good game. They just saw it as dollar signs in their eyes. And eventually the market was glutted with horrible, horrible, horrible games made by people who just wanted to make a buck who had no idea what makes a good video game. So the entire market for home video games had crashed. And Nintendo's coming in as this company who's just looking for some way to, to, to do something interesting and saying, coming into a market that no one wants to touch with the 10-foot pole. But they're like, yeah, that Atari thing was great and all, but that bubble burst. So we don't want in on that. So they had a, a rough start of trying to get this, you know, the Famicom, as it was called in Japan, and the Nintendo Entertainment System, as it was called in the U.S. To <laughs> why, did it, why did it have a different name? Oh, what is, what is Famicom? Famicom was for family computer. Family it looked computer. different. It was positioned differently as like in Japan, you know, you have to know how to market to different people. And in Japan, apparently the way they thought the market was to say, this is a, a computer for your family. Uh, but and in the U.S., they wanted to, you know, market it as an entertainment system. It's not it's not a it's like action figure where you can't call things for boys dolls. 
So they made up the term action figure because, you know, no, no, you know, you're not playing with a doll, son. This is a G.I. Joe action figure. Even It's a doll, okay? Uh, so, did, uh, do you know if they had to blow on their cartridges the way we did? Uh, yeah, I'm sure blowing on cartridges is universal. And by the way, you should not do that. It's bad. Uh, but yeah, so they, 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 in the U.S., it's, you know, they wanted to, this is an entertainment system. Do you understand, Dan? It's not a video game machine. It's not an Atari Right, it's it's an entertainment system. It comes with a robot. It comes with a robot. His name is Rob. You know, it's so the, all sorts of positioning to try to just to not make people connect it with the video game industry, which, as we all know, is dead, and that bubble has burst and so forget about. It. So, we all know what happened next. Nintendo Entertainment System swept through uh, uh, the U.S., became massively successful, and this begins what I like to call Nintendo's Microsoft period. Hmm. And, uh, the, uh, well, it's not Microsoft period. This, this begins a period in which I think there are many parallels between Nintendo and Microsoft. Right. So, uh, as an aside, before we go into this, so I just mentioned the Atari. So, when the video game machines became popular, like Atari was the first one that became popular in the U.S. Mothers of children everywhere, children who wanted this product, would buy it for them and start talking about it as you know, you're always playing the Atari. You're getting on that Atari, my son. I can't get him off the Atari. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, that's just the word that mothers use to talk about the thing. Right. It's kind of like kind of like the MTV. But when the Nintendo Entertainment System swept through the U.S., it was all about these kids are always playing Nintendo. They're always on the Nintendo. They're always playing Nintendo. Come up, you want to come over my house and play Nintendo, right? The word that mothers and fathers—I don't want to be egalitarian here. It's not a sexist thing. Mothers and fathers all used to talk amongst themselves about the thing that their children are doing that they usually disapprove of in some way or that they don't approve of the time put into it. These video game type things. That is a great indicator of who has the mind share, or as Gruber would say, who has the traction in each video game generation. So if you had to name, I gave you the first two, Atari, Nintendo, what, what was the successor to Nintendo? Like if you want to do the history chronologically of the, the word that it has the dominant definition of the thing that parents say that their kids are doing when they're playing video games attached to their TV, can you name the rest? Hmm. I, I don't know because I, I was never subject to, the, to these kinds of terms. You know, you didn't have, did you have anything? Did you have an Atari? Oh yeah. I mean, I had those, but, but, uh, I think my parents are just glad that I wasn't bugging them. Didn't tell you to get off the Atari. And did you have an NES? Yes. I bought it. I bought the Nintendo entertainment system with my own money that I worked for. I was already working by that age. And did your parents say, uh, don't bother Danny. He's on the Nintendo. (laughs) I, I think they were just grateful that I wasn't bothering them. (laughs) I don't know. So if I had to, uh, there's probably some debate about this. There's some debate in the chat room too. Uh, it, it's kind of like, as, as KJ Healy points out, and it pointed out that Kleenex, Xerox, all these sort of generic terms that come to encapsulate things. The difference sure. in the video game industry is that it rotates. So Atari was the one. Everyone's on the Atari. And some, some people of that generation, parents of that generation, don't change what they're saying. They'll still say, when right. you see you sitting in front of you, you're on the Atari. Like they get stuck. Or you're on the Nintendo. It's all the same that, thing to them. I would say the successor to Nintendo, some people are saying Sega. I'm sorry, Sega fanboys, but... No, <laughs> I, I know to, better than had, to say that. If you had to pick one name during that time, Nintendo was the dominant. Some parents did say Sega. That's true. But Nintendo was the dominant name. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next era is PlayStation, clearly. No contest. All on the PlayStation. Right? Now, Nintendo 64 was around that same era, and some parents kept saying Nintendo, but in the culture, it was PlayStation. Playing PlayStation game. Another way to tell is like when, late night stand-up comedians when they talk about 
when they're making jokes about video games, what word will they use? Because they just want the stand-in that, that most of the audience is going to recognize as the thing that we're talking about. So they would say that Atari, they would say Nintendo, then they would say PlayStation. PlayStation lasted for, for a relatively long time. PlayStation 1 and 2 are both dominant. Um, and you'd all talk about the PlayStation. And the next one that came along that took that name is Xbox. My kid's on the Xbox. Right. He's always playing the Xbox. I've heard those Xbox games, Right. And that's kind of interesting. We'll get to that in a little bit in terms of how the, the console things rank. But the Xbox, uh, the Xbox One and Two were not real, or you know, three, the current 360 aren't. You know, the, the Wii was the dominant console of the current generation, not the Xbox. Uh, but Xbox is the one that took that name. So I think there's a whole other. Someone should do a scholarly work about uh, the name that becomes uh, synonymous. And it'll be interesting to see what the next one is. But think about that. We went from Atari, a company that's more or less gone now, to Nintendo, uh, to Sony with the PlayStation, to Microsoft with the Xbox. It's amazing how many times the the, the mind share and the traction and the lead in this industry changes. Mm-hmm. All right. So getting back to parallels with Nintendo is Microsoft. And in the, in the NES era, they did all sorts of, they were dominant. They were They were the big guy. Uh, they they had everybody under under their thumb, kind of like how Microsoft said, "Look, you want to sell a PC? You hardware manufacturers slit each other's throats, trying to kill each other over the last nickel to figure out. I don't care what you guys do. You you know figure out manufacturing. You fight with each other over that. But every single one of you, no matter who wins, Gateway wins, Dell wins. I don't you know Microsoft. I don't care. Microsoft's like, hey, I love you, guys all. You all are gonna buy Windows licenses. <laughs> we got you over a barrel because there's just no way you can sell your product without our product." Are, you know, we are the big dog and we don't care who wins. That is an awesome position to be in. And we're going to, you know, we need that Windows license. We need on everything you sell, we need that Windows license. Well, Nintendo, as the owner of the by far dominant platform in the U.S. and probably worldwide, this generation said, you want to you make your game? Uh, you better make it an NES game because we own this space. Oh, and by, do you, so you want to make an NES game? Well, it's, it's interesting. Uh, if you'd like to do that, you have to come to us and convince us that we should let you make that game. Uh, because, you know, no matter what, we're going to get cut of that. And they did all sorts of Microsoftian type things where, first of all, uh, like, you know, so we know NES things came on cartridges. Uh, Nintendo said, we'll manufacture those console, those cartridges for you. In fact, we insist on it. And we insist on manufacturing those consoles. And of course, we'll take a cut of that. You know, we're not going to give you, we're not going to give you those cartridges at cost. Oh, and by the way, there's a minimum number of cartridges that you must purchase. So you better make your game pretty good because we don't care if you sell zero copies of your game. You have to make a minimum order of X number of thousand things. Pay us to manufacture them. And at that point, we've already made enough money to feel comfortable with your thing. We don't care if a single copy of your game sells anyway. But when you do sell that game to somebody, we're going to take a cut of those sales too. It was a hell of a business to be in, you know, and People, people think current terms of like the App Store and stuff are draconian. Nintendo, you know, uh, was taking a slice of everything that was going on there. Uh, now, there are Apple parallels there, too. The Apple parallels with the, the bad old Apple of today of the App Store is Nintendo had complete control of what went out on its platform. And they had an approval process that was even worse than Apple's. It was like subject to all sorts of crazy constraints of, well, we've already got a racing game, so we really don't want another racing game on our platform. Uh, Apple does not do that. Apple does that with its own software, but there's a million racing games for iOS. Nintendo would never allow the current population of iOS games to be on the NES. They would say, no, this is too much of one kind, not enough of another, too much crap. The, their big thing was they wanted to avoid the, uh, the the fate of Atari. We're not letting a bunch of crap on our platform. Uh, we're going to like sort of, it's that word again, the word of 2011 and possibly the word of 2010, everyone, is curate. They wanted to curate 
their their you know their, their market for games. They controlled it down to the last you know dot on the I and cross on the T. They would go back to manufacturers and say, "Your game is good and everything, but we'd like to give you X and Y." Um, by the way, we don't want blood in our game, so change all your blood to be green. Why? Because we feel like Nintendo is a family brand, and we don't want anything that wouldn't be family appropriate. Uh, someone in the chat room points out the Nintendo seal of quality. Yes, they they were incredibly controlling. That is very Apple-like because it was controlling to a creative end, uh, not to a you know partially financial because they didn't want it to turn into another Atari, but also creatively speaking, they want they had a vision for what what the Nintendo brand meant and what what population of software and and products they needed to achieve that vision. And if you didn't fit into that vision, they would try to hammer you into that vision or they would say, sorry, you know, we're all filled up on racing games right now and yours isn't great. So maybe think about making a different kind of game, right? <laughs> uh, that That is very Apple-like. But the, the other thing that's very Apple-like and the thing that most people cite is when they say, you know, Nintendo is the Apple of the uh, video game market is that Nintendo cared about these touchy-feely, squishy, you know, things like elegance and nuance and stuff like that. It's games were always just, you know, the best games on its platform. It was showing everybody else how it's done. They had Shigeru Miyamoto and a team of other very talented people, and they would make these games kind of like how Apple makes an application and says, look, guys, this is what an iOS app looks like. You know, let us let me just show you how it's done. Or even Mac OS X, like, here, you know, here's what these apps can be. Here's, here's what a, a great Mac OS X app looks like. Here's what a great iOS app looks like. We've got the best people. We've got the most talent. You just go and try to match what we're doing here. You try to make your application as smooth as our mail application is, where just everything is perfect, everything is responsive. You know, if your table view is slow, compare it to ours and see that you're screwing up. If it's too complicated, you have too many buttons, that's not how we want it to be done. Make your apps like ours. Nintendo did the same thing. It's like they cared about the, the games. They cared about them way more than those people who are dumping crap onto Atari, and usually way more than the third parties who are like, well, we just want to make a football game. We want to make money. Uh, the Nintendo games are always thinking about uh, what, what can we do to to further gameplay? The same way that Apple's always thinking about what can we do to further the state-of-the-art and interaction design. And so Nintendo was always held up as an analog to Apple because they seemed to care about the things that, that other people didn't care about uh, out of all proportion to the success of those things. Because sometimes, like, you know, that Madden football game, which was a great football game or anything, uh, you know, not saying it's a bad football game, but it's not breaking any new ground in terms of human computer interaction with video games but it still sold tons of copies whereas uh nintendo's over there trying to figure out what the next big thing is going to be in terms of uh interaction design and gameplay and it's a much riskier proposition and much more kind of touchy-feely now this this history of nintendo uh being kind of like microsoft kind of like apple being dominant obviously their dominance came came to an end when sony came out with the playstation there's a book that I put in the show notes that everyone should read if they're interested in the history of Nintendo. Uh, and if you're interested in the history of Apple and Microsoft and all the stuff that we talk about on the show, and I, even if you're not into video games at all, perhaps especially if you're not into video games at all, the history of the video game industry has many parallels, and I think in as many ways it's much more interesting and exciting than the PC industry, simply because the lead changes so much, and there are so many more interesting characters and players, and, and video games are fun and cool. Uh, so I, I highly recommend this book. It's called Game Over, and it was like an extended version. It's like Game Over plus Press Start to Continue was a subtitle that was added uh, recently. It's it's in the show notes. Uh, it's not very long, and it will take you through most of the modern history of Nintendo. I think it ends around the time of the Wii. Uh, so Hiroshi Yamauchi, as I said, was crazy. Uh, and 
mad with power and loved making money, loved being the dominant player, and was really, really pissed when the PlayStation came along, mostly because of his pig-headed craziness and uh, some botched deals with Sony who then went off and made their own console and turned out to be a hell of a competitor and pushed Nintendo to second place. And part of what how Nintendo lost its way was, well, A, being led by a crazy person who was not a shrewd businessman and had a lot of ego and ha- did a lot of things that were that you'd expect from a cartoon villain <laughs> and, like Inspector Gadget and not so many, perhaps the best, the best moves that you could have done in business. Uh, but the second one was that they got they lost sight of their Appleness and they got caught up in, in the specs game. Uh, I remember when the Nintendo 64 came out, Ultra 64, as the code name was known. They were love saying, look how powerful our system is. Look, you know, look how many triangles. Look at the... Once that happens, any Apple fan says, yeah, you, you've strayed from the Apple path now. You are now trying to compete on specs. And isn't, you know, Nintendo, don't you realize that's not what it's about? It's not about hardware specs. They got caught up in that race because there, admittedly, there was a great race going on there. The, the jump from the NES to the Super Nintendo to the Nintendo 64 and PlayStation generations, huge jumps we made, big leaps, big significant leaps that customers could see. So in some respects, say they had to be, they had to be on, in on that race. But they got so caught up in it that they started to lose sight of the fact that the reason people love Mario and Zelda is not because of the specs of the system. Nobody knew what the specs of the NES were. Nobody cared, right? On the SNES, the Mode 7 graphics, where they would, you know, it was kind of like pseudo 3D, where it looked like you were going into the screen in Mario Kart and Star Fox and, and some right. other, like cartridges would come with processors in them. Yeah. So you could do stuff that you couldn't do before. A little bit of that started to creep in, like, hey, Star Fox. And you know what's cool about Star Fox? It's a cool game and all, but it's got, I forget what the Star Fox thing is called, but it was, you know, it's got some graphics that you couldn't do before, some advances in technology. And Nintendo 64 was full bore. It's like, it's silicon graphics, it's 3D, it's amazing, you know. It's like, what about the games? And they had awesome games. They still had the awesome games and the talent, but their focus had shifted. Uh, and for a variety of reasons, having to do with the hardware design and to other choices, that being not being able to give up that model of making people pay you to manufacture their cartridges, not being able to give up cartridges at all in favor of 10-cent optical discs that were in the PlayStation. So many reasons they lost their way. And PlayStation became dominant. PlayStation 2 uh, followed that on and was also dominance generation. Then Microsoft entered the fray with the Xbox and it's like, where the hell where the hell is Nintendo? So eventually Hiroshi Yamauchi, who is he still alive? I don't know. I'm assuming he if he's still alive, he's in suspended animation waiting to return as a giant monster <laughs> who will have to fight as the boss battle at the end of uh, of the world. Uh, he let go of the company and handed it over to Satoru Iwata. Oh, I hope I did well on that. These sound uh, like uh, like you know, these are tongue twister names. Well, I don't think for, the, for an American, for an American, yes, for Americans they are. But I, over I there, it's have, like you know, John Smith. Yeah, I think they have very regular pronunciations, and I feel ashamed of not being able to pronounce them correctly, especially since I've read them so many times. So he was an unlikely successor, much more soft-spoken, uh, not compared to any Japanese emperors. Uh, <laughs> I believe he started his career as a third-party developer for Nintendo, just kind of wormed his way into the company. And they worked closely with Nintendo, and what he did is a strategy that, that he described. This is great because I, I usually don't get people describing their strategies. Normally, uh, it is kind of like Apple-like where Jobs will come on stage and say, here's what we were thinking about making a phone and here's what we thought about. We thought about like all these buttons, you know, the, the iPhone intro where you said, here's what the phones look like, but how can you do these buttons? Uh, if we did a screen, then we don't have to worry about 
picking the wrong arrangement of buttons because we can change it to look like whatever we want. And what if you make the whole phone a screen? You know, you know how he did that thing in the iPhone presentation? Yeah. It was like explaining what what was your thinking here? Yeah, but you so only at least at least the public version of what they wanted to share about it. But it right. was interesting. But you only do that like after you've got the phone. I mean, it was this however many months before they introduced it, but they had to do that because of FCC. Uh, you know, it, the phone was going to become public, right? You don't do that before. You don't do that during. You do it after. So, and I love when they I love when they even do it after. So Nintendo did it after too. Nintendo said that its next console to be a successor to the GameCube, which unfortunately was another console where they we're still trying to chase the specs and bragging about how many hardware lights they could support and how it was more powerful than the PlayStation 2. And they you know, they were losing their way. They would switch to optical discs, but they were these weird optical discs because they still wanted to be unique and have good hop- copy protection, you know. Uh, so their next console, the, 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 well, the first console they did under Iwata was the Nintendo DS. Uh, I'll do a sidebar on this. Nintendo DS stands for dual screen. And it was a handheld, uh, gaming platform that had, uh, Two screens. One of them was a touch screen, and one of them was a regular screen. Uh, and, and Nintendo was coming off... Uh, Nintendo never lost its lead in the handheld. Their Game Boy franchise was dominant from the beginning and just destroyed all comers. They dominated handheld. And so when DS came along, it was like, oh, Nintendo, you've screwed up with, with the Nintendo 64, and the GameCube, you screwed up. You're a distant third. Now Microsoft has entered the fray. You're not even competing with one other Japanese competitor. Now Microsoft has come in and just like, you're, you're dropping the ball, and here's your new... Uh, CEO Awada and and he's introducing this handheld with two screens on it. How the hell are we going to look at two screens and, and a touch screen that used with a pen? It's, you know, the pressure sensitive touch screens and I, what the hell is this thing with the two screens? Uh, it was kind of like watching your favorite company go down the tubes. Kind of like watching Apple, you know, sell performers and Sears and have eight million model numbers and have the Newton be crappy. And you're like, oh man, it's all going to crap. Uh, but what most people didn't realize was that dual screen thing, that was based on new ideas about how people might interact with games. Oh, I thought and it was that, those, little, that little Donkey Kong uh, game. Do you know, remember the, the game, one? Game and Watch, yeah. Yeah, that thing was the best. Did you have yeah, that? that? I did not have that, but I know people who <sighs> did have that. It, it did, like, people made the comparison like, oh, geez, man, you made, you made a Game and Watch. It's this clamshell thing with two screens on it. Now, granted, there are color screens and one of them is touch sensitive, but that doesn't make a big difference, does it? Well... It turns out that it did make a big difference. The DS sold like crazy, and people loved it, and people were shocked by it. People in the gaming industry were, were surprised. They were like, what, what the hell? We thought this thing was a crazy piece of crap, but I play with it, and I realize, man, I'm doing things that I hadn't done with handheld gaming before. It's this touch, adding a touchscreen, having two screens, there's something to that. Uh, and so that was a big success, but it was still like, well, all right, so fine. I, uh, you know, Nintendo has always dominated the handheld industry, and so they didn't drop the ball, I guess. I guess we were wrong about that. But then there were rumor, rumors of their next console, which was called the Revolution, was the code name, which we all just kind of gagged on, like, you know, like Ultra 64. It was going to be some amazing thing and have some amazing graphics, this Revolution. And they would, Iwata would drop little hints about what this thing was going to be like. One of them was like, it's the size of three DVD cases stacked on top of each other. And everyone's like, what? You can't fit a modern console into the size of a case of three DVDs stacked on top of each other. What could this thing possibly be? Is it a handheld? Is it... It, you know, already people saying, oh, Nintendo's done. They're, they're, the hardware's crap already. There's no way this is going to be as powerful as the Xbox 360 or the PlayStation 3, who had amazing WYSIWYG demos. Uh, and they said, it's not going to be high definition. Like, what? You're introducing a new console that's not high definition? Don't you realize all your competitors are, re- are releasing a console that's high definition? It, you know, they're doomed. Forget it. The Nintendo might as well stop. Forget about making consoles. You're done. This Awada guy has totally dropped the ball. You know, Hiroshi Yamauchi would never let this happen. 
he would he would crush his competitors with an iron fist. Uh, <laughs> and eventually, and then they announced the name. We're going to call it the Wii W I I. And much internet hilarity ensued. It was it's, it was a joke. Do you remember how how horrible it, the the reputation of Nintendo was? At the, basically at that point the name and the specs had all been announced and it's like oh you're done not hd stupid name right not powerful what happened to these guys yeah and they all, used to be these guys used to be something yeah and so then they introduced the actual console and they showed the control scheme that it was going to be used it's gonna, like it looks like a big remote control and i i think i posted something on the fat bits blog where you know what was the phrase i used i think it was i, I you're gonna bleep me here well Bat crap, but I didn't say crap. I don't Bat have, crap, oh, yeah. effing insane. <laughs> a television remote. It, it was a square thing with a, with a little IR thing on the end. It, it looked like a television remote. I'm going to control my games with a television remote? I don't think so. Oh, and like a little joy thing attached to it. It's just like, what the hell are these people doing? They're nuts. And so when Iwata, uh, you know, I don't know if it was when he announced this, but shortly after or whatever, explained the, the strategy, the business strategy. So let me tell you what we've been doing for the past <laughs> however many years let me tell you let me try to explain to you in stilted japanese english as a second language executive uh you know presentation what we call this and the strategy they called it was blue ocean which is very typical for a japanese company to have some sort of nature derived uh metaphor for the thing uh, this is the blue ocean strategy and the idea was that you want to you want to get to to markets that are free from competitors vast blue ocean where it's just you you want to stay away from red oceans, bloody, bloody red oceans where there are, you know, packs of rivals fighting each other. Right. And their their Iwata's realization and his team's realization, I guess, was that the home console market was a red ocean. We were all trying to make the same machines with controllers and high definition and chasing each other on specs and making the games on optical discs. And we're just, you know, constantly fighting, fighting Sega, fighting Sony, now fighting Microsoft. That's a red ocean. Uh, and he decided we're not even going to try. To, we're not going to go there. We're not even going to try to do that. We're going to do blue ocean. We're going to go someplace where nobody is. We will be the only one in this vast blue ocean. And we hope to God that the customers follow us. That, you know, and DS was the first blue ocean device. We're going to make now. And it's interesting. It's the first blue ocean device because there weren't really many competitors, but it was like, kind of, let's do something where we think there's nobody. And so they had, you know, the DS with a, uh, those touch type games and i think brain age and stuff was on the ds first chat room correct me if i'm getting the chronology wrong here but think games like brain age where it was like a math game that like you know non-gamers would play places where uh, you know nintendo dogs stuff like that (laughs) like a pet game where you you tap at your little dog with the stylus and stuff and pet him (laughs) nobody was there that's a blue ocean right and it turns out there was a big market for that stuff so ds was you know if they were worried about would this blue ocean strategy, they didn't talk about blue ocean for DS. They were like, you know, here's the DS. It's this crazy thing. We really think it'll be great. And then they shut up and people bought tons of them. Right. So when the, the, we came out, they said, here's, you know, let's, let's, let me lay it out for you. What we're doing with this blue ocean thing, this crazy remote waggling thing with the remote control and waving stuff around and our launch game being like a sports game where you bowl and stuff. Nobody else is there. It's just us. No, they all have regular controllers. They're all about high definition and shooting stuff like space Marines and playing Madden. And we're, we're not going to go there. We're not, we are not at that place. We are in the blue ocean and we all know how the, the we turned out. It crushed its competitors. It sold tons and tons of copies to, because 
they were in a market where there was nobody. They were selling to people who were not, who could never figure out how to play like the latest Call of Duty game, who, who had no idea how to play Madden, who had not played the last 18 versions of Madden and were just hardcore, you know? They weren't competing with those guys. They weren't, we're not even high definition. Like we couldn't compete with them if we even wanted to. We are going to a new market, a new market that we think is bigger. This blue ocean thing is very, very similar to what Apple has done with uh, with iPad and iOS. You know, when they made their tablet computer, it's not Windows tablet. It's not a Mac OS 10 tablet. It's not trying to be where other people had gone and failed with that. They basically made a new market for themselves. Like we are gonna, we're going blue ocean. This iPad is selling to people who, you know, how many people who bought an iPad never owned a tablet before? Probably like to a good approximation, all of them. Because nobody ever owned a tablet. Why would you ever want? It's Blue Ocean. They were the only one there. They said, we have this tablet thing. It's a different thing than everything else. Uh, we we tried, like, the, the iPhone was kind of like their DS. We tried this Blue Ocean strategy with, with our phone. We think, will people, will people love this touchscreen and do all this stuff with it? It's like no phone you've ever seen before. Right. Totally distinct from its competitors. That worked gangbusters. We can do it again with the iPad. Blue Ocean strategy. Uh and how did they do this Blue Ocean strategy? What, what was integral for Nintendo to, to do to, to make this move with the Wii? And it's a yes. You couldn't do either one of those things if Nintendo was just a software manufacturer. Because yes, there were software innovations. Uh, that you know, Wii Bowling, the, the, the greatest software innovation of our time for <laughs> video games, not, not technologically complicated, did not involve a real-time shadowing and multiple lights and you know, a level of detail scaling and high definition whatever and and pixel shaders it did not right the software innovation was in the interaction and you can't pull it off unless you have the hardware that Wiimote with the accelerometers in it that those ir emitters on top of your screen later the motion plus thing with the gyroscopes in it the ds with the touch screen with the two two screens they made that handhold they made those things and and this strategy of, of hardware tied to software this has been nintendo's policy for a long time think about the nintendo 64 for all of its leaning on the specs you can't do Mario 64 without an analog stick. Mm-hmm. Up to that point, the entire company Nintendo was built on that D-pad where you go up, down, left, right. Uh, and SNES, that, that's how you play games. And there was, there was an arcade stick that you could do for other stuff too, but it was up, down, left, right. Mario 64 doesn't exist without that analog stick. They had to make their own controller. That controller and Mario 64 were designed together. Mario can walk slowly if you push the analog stick a little bit. That's an essential part of that game. Mario walks in all sorts of different directions, not just up, down, left, and right in increments. You know, that that strategy, hardware and software, hand in hand, is what allowed Nintendo to make Nintendo uh, Mario 64 to succeed in 3D platformers where other companies had not to to show an entire generation of of, of Mario, uh, of Mario, entire generation of video game makers. Here's how you make a 3D video game. And it's arguable that Mario 64 is the iPhone of the of 3D video games because up until that point, people had made 3D games, but it, you know it hadn't sell. When Nintendo made Mario 64, that showed everybody else. Here's what you're supposed to do. Now everybody go iterate on that. It's kind of like the iPhone said, no, no, no. You make the whole phone a screen, and huge glut of phones that are just screens come along, right? It, despite the fact that at that point Nintendo was dropping the ball in terms of sticking with cartridges and, and concentrating on specs and stuff like that, they were still, you know, if they were serious about software and they had to make their own hardware. And the Wii, most definitely, they dominated that generation because they made their own hardware. They did what no one else was was willing to do. They could have made, those people were all, that, that's the thing about it. you have to, you know, make your own hardware. Sony was making its own hardware. Microsoft was making its own hardware. Like they, you know, it's the console market. They weren't, it wasn't third party hardware. But they weren't. They didn't consider that as a, a variable that you could change. They said, "Okay, we're just going to make a more powerful version of our previous PlayStation, 
or you can use the same damn controller with it. Maybe put some, you know, other stuff in it. They did the accelerometers with six axis and everything, but so many reactions to the Wii of like, we need to add motion control and stuff like that. So finally, circling way back around to Guy English's post, him saying that he thinks that Nintendo should start developing for iOS. I have to say that I have a hard time recommending to Nintendo, the company, that they should uh, go away from an environment where they can make their own hardware. Because all of their successes, both the, the, the success of Mario 64, the, I guess it was called the philosophical success of Mario 64, despite the fact that Nintendo 64 was not a very successful console, the, the creative success of Mario 64, or the commercial success of the Wii and the DS, all of uh, Nintendo's greatest successes have relied on them being able to control the hardware and the software and them being willing to use their control of both of those things to move to new places. The same way Apple has. You know, if Apple was had done what people said and stopped making hardware and just licensed Mac OS, say that strategy had worked and they had destroyed Microsoft and become the dominant desktop operating system because they had licensed Mac OS and, uh, and it was better than Windows and everyone realized it and that was it. Would Apple be where it is today? No, because eventually someone would come along and iPod them. Someone would come along and iPad them. Someone would have iPhone to them. You've got to make the hardware. If you're if you're serious about software, you've got to make the hardware. Even if oh, it was a great strategy, I did what Microsoft did. That's fighting the last war. You know, it's they, they would they would be screwed. They would not be where they are today. You absolutely have to have the hardware. So it pains me to see Nintendo being hurt in the market and losing for a variety of reasons and people putting on the table the idea that they should stop making hardware. I don't, I don't think that's the solution. I'll be very sad if that happens. Uh, I don't think we have time remaining in this show to go into yeah. uh, alternate strategies for Nintendo or what might happen. to them. But I have to say, uh, my, my main thrust here is Nintendo, please don't ever stop making hardware. And please don't ever stop doing what you do because it's kind of like if Apple hadn't made the iPhone, what kind of phones would be using now? If Nintendo hadn't made the Wii, what kind of video games would we have now? Would, some people would say they'd be better. We'd just play on our PlayStation 5s and we'd use the same damn PlayStation controller with maybe a few more buttons added to it and it would just be awesome and gamers would love it. But I would say that we would be much worse off. I think it's probably a good way to end... Uh and 2011 with that sentiment yeah sorry once along on the nintendo stuff i obviously have a lot to say about nintendo and i tried to focus it on this one particular topic but i didn't do a very good job but yeah all right well, i i loved this episode it loves you back i love i love that it loves me yeah well i want to wish you a happy new year oh you too nan are you gonna be safe Staying indoors. I, I, I stay home like the homebody that I am, so I will be safe. That's good. That's all I think about New Year's Eve is, is John okay? Yeah. Will I he, think about it too. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Well, let's say uh, thanks to everybody for tuning in. Happy New Year to everybody. And uh, this is this is the last show that uh, we will record in 2011 because uh, tomorrow, Saturday, is New Year's Eve. Uh, but we will be back recording Monday, uh, which I guess is the second. So this is the final show for 5x5 Five Five for 2011. So thanks for being with us uh, for the last year and the last couple of years. 
And thanks for listening uh, to the show. John, please, please be safe. I will. You too, Dan. All right. Happy New Year.